Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me, and welcome to the Artisans of Steel podcast. I'm your host, Marek Malmasi, bladesmith and lover of Damascus. In this podcast, I speak to some of the most talented knife makers of our modern times to learn about them, their path, and their process. Come join me and my community of makers on Patreon, where I host live Q&As, where you have early access to interviews like these, and we're innovating daily on my private Discord forum. I look forward to interacting with you there. We got a great guy today, and I'm really excited to get to him. But before we do, I just want to mention real quick that uh, this podcast is supported through my uh, Patreon. Uh, if you look up Malmasi Fire Arts over on Patreon, um, you can find the Patreon. You can support at different levels. If you support at the illuminated individual levels, uh, it gets you in here at uh, into these live conversations to be part of the conversation, either through the live chat or asking questions to be answered by our individual uh, interviewees and the different makers that I pull in here to chat with. Um, and so our super sponsors that I want to mention uh, this month are, first off, uh, is Josh Weston. He's Josh A. Weston on Instagram, as well as at the drag, uh, sorry, at Dragonforge EXP. That's the Dragonforge experience. Josh is working on some really cool fabrication work right now, building a, uh, building one of his Dragonforges. They're literally forges with dragons fabricated around them. They have them set up at various Renaissance fairs across the country uh, in kind of uh, permanent situations where you can go and forge out of the mouth of a dragon. They're very cool, really great setups. And Josh is a great guy, super uh, creative. He is actually also working on a cool collaboration right now uh, with David Delagardel. He is the, oh, of course I can say David Delagardel, but I can't think of his name on Instagram is Cedar Lore Forge. He's Cedar Lore Forge. So um, go check out Josh A. Weston on Instagram. He's got some great stuff going on. Next up we have Gabe Fletcher. He is at Anchorage Forge excuse me, at Anchorage Forge, uh, as well as at Anchorage Brewing. Um, Gabe is actually going to be down in Olympia, where I'm at, uh, in a couple weeks, taking my class. But he's also a very talented uh, brewer. Uh, if you don't have access to Anchorage Brewing and you are like beers, Anchorage Brewing makes some of the best beers I've ever tasted in my life. Uh, go to your local beer market, and if uh, they don't have them already, have their buyer get them in because they're really incredible beers. And uh, also Gabe is doing really great work in the forge. He's a newer maker, uh, but I've had the fortunate uh, or the, I've been fortunate to go work with him and spend some time with him and share some of what I know and understand about knife making. And he is taking that knowledge and really ran with it. He is creating some really great mosaic Damascus patterns and forging integral chef's knives out of them. And he's just doing a really great job. He's going to be a maker to continue to watch. Um, and I'm just so fortunate to feel, uh, to be part of his path and his journey. Uh, so to go check out Gabe at Anchorage Forge on Instagram. Next up is Lawrence Lake of Maritime Knife Supply. You can find him on Instagram at Maritime Knife Supply, as well as MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. He is a knife supplier for knife uh, makers. That's anything from pins and rivets to handle materials to steel to abrasives, to grinding machines, anvils, um, anything you can think of that you need for your knife making process, even, even etchant. Uh, he has etchant. In fact, he just got some of the new, uh, I think they're, they're from Corin down in Australia. They're the carbide-faced 
uh, blade straightening hammers. Uh, I think I can't remember what they call them, the DD knock or something like that. Let's see. I just had it pulled up a second ago. The new DD knockers. These are handheld. Uh, it's just the hammer head and just the light tapping. That's all you need. Um, actually, with the hammer, is it does create, because it's a carbide face, uh, creates the potential of hitting them too hard. Uh, so by holding just the hammer head and just tap the face, that is enough impact to manipulate and help to straighten out the blade, even after it's been hardened. Um, they're pretty handy, and you can go get them over at Maritime Knife Supply right now. Next up, we have Mr. Russell Tinsley of Oozel Finch Beers. Uh, he's based out of Virginia. Uh, he's on Instagram as at, uh, at Can't Make Knives. Although he is getting his learning on, he's trained with uh, talented smiths like uh, Jason Knight and Ben Breda. Um, he's he's picking up his skills and he's he's working with other uh, people throughout who are part of the Patreon community as well as just local to him. He's doing some good work and I'm I'm excited to be following him and uh, and to see how he develops as a maker. He's doing great work and he's a good dude. Uh, go check him out at Can't Make Knives is his maker page. His uh, Oozle Finch is his brewing company he owns in Virginia. Uh, they're very outside of the box kind of beers. They're super tasty. I've had a few varieties myself, and while they are extremely unusual, they're extremely delicious. Uh, and again, go check out your beer market. If they don't have them at your beer market, talk to the buyer there about getting some of those Oozel Finch beers in. Oozel is spelled or Oozel Finch is O-O-Z-L-E-F-I-N-C-H. You can find them on Instagram, Oozel Finch Beers. Okay. Next up, we have Mr. Michael Poor. He is at Red Dragon Forge. Uh, another great guy. He's actually just a little bit north of me, about mm, two hours, hour and a half, uh, depending on how fast you're driving down the highway. But uh, he's going to be down taking that class at the end of the month with me as well. Um, he does a lot of more traditional Japanese style knives. He does really great work. He's a really good dude. He's a very talented cook. In fact, sometimes I don't like following him on Instagram because he cooks so much delicious food and I don't get to eat it. Uh, so it's kind of difficult to watch. Um, and so, uh, I'm excited though, to spend some time with him. He's been a great supporter for a long time now. And, uh, I'm excited to, yeah, just spend some time with him, get to know him better, um, and, and do some work with him. So. Uh, go check out Michael Poor. He's on a very good path. Mike, he just jumped in top of the morning to you uh, into the live chat, which you can become part of if you're part of the Patreon. Um, I'm excited to hang out with him at the end of the month. Okay, next up we have Tony Sazma. He is TNT Forge. Uh, I'm psyched for him. He just got his uh, house made from Brian House. House made forge up and running, rock and rolling. He has some fresh billets out uh, that look extremely clean and very uniform. He's doing a great job. Uh, he's developing more and more Damascus skills, uh, and he's got the equipment to do the job as well. He also does a really incredible job with handle finishing and blade finishing. So he's definitely a good follow just for uh, insight and inspiration. Uh, he actually joined us for a Q&A session a couple months back. Uh, really great guy and thankful to have his support as well. Again, he's on Instagram at TNT Forge. All right, next up is Mr. Eric Kidwell. <clears throat> he is on Instagram at District202 LLC. He is kind of the man behind the scenes at basically the last 
almost 10 years of Travis Wirtz Hammerins, who has the camera um, running around, making sure everybody's got a view. Because not only, because when people are doing the demonstrations, they're kind of like hunkered over the, the grinder or the forge or the hammer. And you can't, it sometimes is really difficult to see what's going on. Travis is smart and he's got a secondary screen set up. And that is connected to the live feed coming from Eric, who's running around with the camera. So if you can't see what's happening right there, Eric is getting in there up close and personal with all the different grinding demonstrations, forging de demonstrations, um, so that you can see what's going on. And he's a great guy. He's getting uh, on his knife making journey. He's got his shop is probably getting close to fully set up uh, and wired up and ready to rock and roll. Uh, again, he's a good dude. And again, he's starting his journey. He's going to be a good guy to follow. Uh, and if you get the chance to go down to the Travis Wirtz Hammerin, which I believe is the second weekend in March, um, do it. It's a great event. Eric will be there for sure. And um, and I actually might be there as well this year uh, doing some teaching. So it'll be fun. All right. Last but not least is Mr. Dan Hubs. He's on Instagram at 66mountainknives. He is a maker of that who is not from Texas. <laughs> He's from Oklahoma. Uh, and I kept getting that twisted. I'm so sorry, Dan. Um, watch. I probably got that messed up again. For all I know, he's from Wyoming. No, I'm just joking. He mess he messaged me the other day. He's definitely not from Texas, at least. Um, no, he's a good dude. He's doing some really great work. I love his EDCs. He does some really clean, nice EDC knives, which are just kind of EDC is short for everyday carry. It's just a nice little knife that you can always have on you for whatever you need it for. Um, but he does some really nice clean work and he's making it his own uh copper mine Damascus and and he just making good stuff he's he's newer maker to me i think he's been doing it for a few year, years um and he's going to be again another maker to watch and follow because uh he's doing really clean solid work and uh he actually just put out a chef's knife too recently that i thought was pretty slick uh so go give him a follow uh dan is at six six mountain knives those are the numbers not the words anyways whew, i got through all the sponsors thank you for hanging through all that um, our guest today is a maker that I, I met, oh gosh, when was this? I think it was in 2015. Um, I, I, I wanted to take an introduction to bladesmithing course, uh, at one of the accredited schools. Uh, so I, w I, I wanted to take it up at the New England School of Metalwork because I think kind of at the time that was really, there are several locations now, but there are only maybe a couple. And I really wanted to go up to New England because that, that's the one I saw the most on through social media, uh, and it looked like a good time, a cool setup, and um, and but there were throughout the year. I think there are a few make or a few, yeah, a few mastersmiths teaching the introduction to bladesmithing course, and um, but the one that really stood out to me was Steve Culver because his approach is very different from mine. I'm I'm a very um, <laughs> Uh, let's eyeball it kind of situation where he is uh, a much more precise maker uh, than me. And I, I, I really ins uh, was inspired by that. And, um, and I wanted to kind of see the world or the, the approach of knife making from kind of more of a machinist standpoint than where I was coming from with basically kind of like 
just kind of shooting from the hip kind of standpoint <laughs> and just eyeballing stuff. Um, I met him. I took the class. There were other great maker or uh, students in the class I connected with, but Steve was a really great guy, and I feel feel very fortunate to have, and very glad that I chose to take that class um, because he's been a great resource and friend. And I haven't done a bit as good of a job as I should have over the last few years staying in contact, but I'm very thankful that he jumped in here, uh, was willing to jump in here and have this conversation with us. I would love, I'm excited to pull him in and have this conversation. I'm going to pull him, pull him in right now. And, uh, and also thank him for being part of, I believe it was the first year or the second year that I did the Artisans of Steel calendar. And, um, and he does really awesome and very clean again very clean very inspirational work he does his own engraving he makes cut and shoots steve how are you we'll get into all that later <laughs> how are you doing this morning i'm doing great and thanks for inviting me on and absolutely well, you've got some great sponsors and i really appreciate all those folks that are supporting you that's that's really awesome yeah i'm super thankful for them yeah, yeah. and you know so like i said like your work uh what is it so I started by working out for Bob Kramer. I worked for him for three years and then I stepped away from knife making. And then I, as I started to get back into it, I was searching through, around through the internet and your work was some of the stuff that was kind of repetitively coming up. And, um, and that's, I think that's part of the reason when I took that class at the New England School of Metalwork, you were kind of top of mind out of the other makers that were offering that class or to teach that class, you were the one that was kind of top of my mind um, when I was going to sign up for that. And, and I really liked your approach and and I wanted to connect with you. Because I, I, I think something that people don't really uh, take into consideration, it is uh, all of us have lives, all of us are busy. And while social media creates a level of accessibility, it's hard to feel like you can get back to everybody. Yeah. Um, but when you've met somebody in person, you've developed a relationship. Um, that's a different situation. And I think that was one of the things I was really looking forward to when I was getting ready to take the class with you is that you were super talented. You're doing great work. And I was like, if I have any questions in the future, if I make a good impression, maybe he'll <laughs> be able to help me with stuff. And um, I haven't leaned on you too much. Um, but when I start getting into folders and playing with folders, I'll probably be leaning on you a little bit more. Um, but anyways, that's why that's why I've I've been a fan of yours for a long time and um, and why I wanted you to be part of the conversation here today as well as part of the calendar in the past. And so thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, I, I appreciate you asking me on. And I have to say, I, of course, follow your work and I'm so very impressed mm. with all the all your work and what you've done with Damascus patterns and and that you share all this information. That's that means the world to, to all these people are trying to learn. And I think that's just awesome of you. So uh, I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job. And thank you. Well, it means a lot coming from you again because you've been you're so your your work has been so inspiring to me that that really means a lot. Um, so. To get started, let's just kind of get some of your background and your history. Like, what were you, I guess, let's start out. What was childhood like for you? I mean, were you <laughs> smashing on steel right away or what were you doing as a kid? I, I've always wanted to create things and basically grew up in on a farm. Uh, and a farm provides a whole lot of construction materials. <laughs> sure. <laughs> there, there's wood and steel and all kinds of stuff. And 
I, I think I had my parents terrified most of the time at what I was going to build next because it, <laughs> it had to be something that would shoot a projectile or, burn <laughs> right, or explode or go fast, <laughs> you know. And so I was always inventing something, but I was the kind of kid that, you know, you give me a mechanical toy and the first thing I do is take it apart to see how it worked. I have so, that same affliction. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I always wanted to to see how things worked. Um as I grew up uh, uh, in my young teen years, uh, I met a guy who became my lifelong best buddy. In fact, he's in Idaho and him and his wife's going to be here at our house in a couple of days. Uh, oh, wow. It's, it's our 50th class reunion. Holy. <laughs> I remember when my dad had his 50th class reunion and I could not fathom being out of <laughs> high school 50 years, but here I am. There you are. But, yeah. But anyway, this buddy of mine, his dad was a service manager at the local Pontiac Cadillac dealership. Okay. And they would get in cars on their, that they would take on trade in, put on a used car lot that would need like engines and transmissions rebuilt. So his dad would bring them home to his shop and me and my buddy Gary would rebuild them under his dad's supervision. Oh, wow. The, the, you know, we're, 12, 13, 14 years old, and we're building, sure. you know, GTOs and Firebirds. And, and then if we get them running and his dad would take us out on a back road in the middle of the night, and, you know, two o'clock in the morning, we got a 67 GTO doing burnouts uh, out on a back road, you know. So I got into cars and I was like, well, that's kind of creative. And I, I wanted to build race cars, of course, sure. you know. So I took a job as auto mechanic and I found out I spent most, I didn't build race cars. I, I did valve jobs on some old lady station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of boring. I mean, I did, I worked on race cars, but so sure. that didn't satisfy my creative desire. And uh, I also did gunsmithing. I, I was like the family gunsmith. And there was a period in the nineties where I got laid off from a factory I worked at and I started up my gunsmithing business. And so I thought, oh, I want to build custom guns. But, and, and Bailey Bradshaw, I mean, if you've ever seen Bailey's work, you don't know it. Y'all need to go look at Bailey Bradshaw's. Yeah. Bradshaw gun and rifle. I don't remember the exact name is stuff, but look up Bailey Bradshaw. Bailey is a master bladesmith as well. Oh, wow. But anyway, Bailey's figured out how to make a living making custom guns. I, I wound up cleaning dirt out of the 12-gauge shotguns that farmers drug around behind the backseat of the pickup truck. You know? Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got bored with that. But, you know, it was in the late 80s I picked up a knife magazine and I saw where guys were making knives. And that finally that was like, okay, now this looks fascinating. Sure. Because, you know, I... I don't, I can't think of any object other than maybe guns that you can use so many different materials and so many different forms of embellishment on a right. single item. Yeah. So that's when I got into knife making. Um, I did take an apprenticeship, a blacksmithing apprenticeship, uh, 87. Okay. Uh, uh, the state of Kansas and the, uh, the state historical society. And the Kansas Arts Commission put together a grant thing for artisans to take a one-year apprenticeship with someone who 
was skilled at one of the skilled artisans in that craft. And so wow. I took a one-year apprenticeship with a guy who wound up being one of my closest friends. And unfortunately, he passed away about eight years ago. But okay. he and I used to travel all over Kansas <laughs> and do blacksmithing demonstrations. But that, that started me out on forging. And then I, I went to the grand opening of the... Texarkana School of Bladesmithing. Mm -hmm. That was 1988. That was what became the Moran School in right. Washington, Arkansas. But I was there, 1988. <laughs> the grand opening. Yeah, met all the all the guys there and took a whole bunch of pictures and. Yeah, Moran. I mean, Moran must have been there, right? Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, Moran, Joe Kiesler, Jay Hendrickson, B.R. Hughes. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody. And then I actually wound up taking a, a Damascus class, class that was taught by Bill Moran. Okay. And uh, Tim Hancock was one of my classmates in that. And wow. That I just 90. got goosebumps. All <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was 90 or 91, something like that. And took Moran's class. And yeah, so Tim and I were friends for all those years. And, I gotcha. Oh, yeah. wow. So, yeah. What a trip. Um. Can I add, so that was in 88. Um, how old were you at the time when that was, were you like in your early 30s, late 20s? Yeah, I'd have been about 30. Well, I was born in 55, so 30. <laughs> oh, thir so like 33. Yeah, 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 33. Early 30s. Wow, what a trip. Um, I can't, <laughs> it's so crazy to hear you like mention all those names and all that stuff that's happening all and you're like kind of in the right place at the right time, right? Because you're in Kansas uh, at the time when all that's happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, just to, like my brain is like taking a mental time warp a trip back to and just seeing all these people standing around <laughs> hanging out and doing some cool stuff. And It was, it was cool. That's where yeah. I met Jerry Fisk and, and Jim sure. Kroll was there. Yeah. It was back when Jimmy had long, dark hair and a mustache and... <laughs> And, uh, I got, I got, I had a whole bunch of pictures of Jimmy and, uh, in 2010, I did a ABS hammer in here at my shop Okay. and, and Jim and Jenny stayed here with Mary and I for several days in our house. Yeah. And so I went and got all those old pictures of Jimmy and showed to Jenny, you know, she, <laughs> she enjoyed seeing all those. Yeah. Who's that hippie? <laughs> <laughs> That, Jim's that a great was, guy. I've only oh. got to chat with him a couple of times, but he's very kind. Oh, uh, yeah. And very talented and very cool guy to, to meet. And he's done a lot of instructing and teaching himself, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. he has. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to back up to the gunsmithing because you, you talked about how you were doing the gunsmithing. But, like, how did that even start? Just Did it just start from you fixing and working on your own guns? Um, and then and then And how did that progress to... To where you were kind of were doing it somewhat professionally but <laughs> not necessarily to where you wanted to be because you're like you're saying you're cleaning the dirt out of people's rifles that were sitting in the back seat and stuff like yeah that. well yeah i was kind of like the family gunsmith i mean my grandpa's guns and our our guns and so i was a, i was a family member had mechanical aptitude so i took care of all that and then i got you and then when i got old enough well, i started buying my own guns i love guns and sure and did reloading and taking care of my stuff, but right. I got laid off. Uh, 
something I left out. I spent okay. 25 years working at a dog food plant. Okay. Did and, you and tell two, me Purina? Yeah. Uh, no, it no. was it, it was General Foods when I got okay. hired on. It went through Heinz and Del Monte. I and gotcha. Every few years, it'd be, have a forced buyout. And sure. <laughs> there were some years I was laid off, and then they called me back. Okay. Um, but I was a some of those years I was a shift maintenance man and they sent me to school to learn machine work. So oh. that's where I picked up my machinist background is I got you. The dog that's... food plant sent me. <laughs> yeah. On the job <laughs> training kind of in a way. Yeah. It's but... a good way to get an education, get your job, get your job to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was great. They paid for all of it, you know, Yeah, local trade school here. But anyway, I got laid off at one point. There was a period I was off. They did call me back and I went back for a number of years, but I was like, okay, I got to do something. And I was right. doing the knife making and I had all the gunsmithing tools. And so I took a gunsmithing class and did that for a while, got hired back, dropped the gunsmithing business, just made knives yeah. until, well, it was 2005. <clears throat> Me and the site manager of the dog food plant at the time, we we got into a serious disagreement. Oh. And I decided it was time to walk out the door after 25 <laughs> years. And I was like, I'll go home and fire up my knife making and gunsmithing business. So I did. Sure. But after a few years of trying to run both, uh, I had so many customers, I could not keep up with both. Okay. Like, I, With okay. both the gunsmithing and the knife making. Yeah, I was I like you, doing yeah. gunsmithing three three days a week, and then you know Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then Thursday I was doing knife making, and right Thursday, Friday, and Saturday knife making, and but I was getting behind, starting to irritate customers. I was like, I got to make a choice. I know the feeling; it doesn't feel good. Yeah, and I was <laughs> like, okay, if I'm going to do one of these, which one's going to entertain me? Oh. And it was definitely the gunsmith or the, the knife making because, okay. like I said, the gunsmithing was, you know, I love working on guns, but that's not creative. And I, 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 I got to be creative. So I was like, OK, I'm dropping the gunsmithing, going to strictly knives. And so that's where I went. So that was that was 2005. I quit the dog food plant. And you went full time knives. Went full time. Yeah. Now, before we get too much farther into our conversation, I will, I, I do want to talk about, because I think there are a lot of makers who, uh, who have full-time jobs who are maybe trying to go full-time with knives. So they're doing it part-time. Uh, there are some who are trying to balance it. And I guess, I, and, and like you said, you've been doing it since 87. So yeah. through that whole time, you were also still making knives. How did you, I guess, what are the pros and cons uh, or what's a, not a cost benefit analysis, but just like, yeah, I guess like kind of like pros and cons of keeping the full-time job and then doing knives on the side. And at what point for you personally, um, I mean, obviously there was a, a, a serious disagreement, um, uh, but you know, w at what point, what were some of the determining factors that, that other determining factors that helped you make the choice to go full-time? Um, so I guess let's start with kind of like, what, what were the pros and cons for keeping kind of a regular job, uh, you know, a regular W-2 job and versus being self-employed um, uh, for a while while you're doing your knife or balancing 
you're still doing your knife making and gunsmithing on the side. Well, a, a full-time <laughs> job, of course, steady paycheck, but yeah. you know, benefits, health insurance and stuff. And right. that's, that is huge. Now I was blessed that my wife had a good job, worked for a bank. And so I was right. able to get health insurance through there, mm-hmm. but you know, retirement and stuff. And now, now you're on your own, you know, if you're going to put right. together retirement. So, you know, all the steady benefits, you know, that's really important. But over the years, I had been working on developing my my, my knife making. I was going to shows and stuff already. So yeah. I was doing that. And I was doing gunsmithing on the side anyway. So for me, I I was at the point where I was pretty much prepared to just uh, you know, just step off into it. I was like, I see. I I really wasn't at the point of deciding that until me and <laughs> the, the the plant manager had a. We'll, just, a, we'll just call him Dick. <laughs> well, yeah, he, <laughs> he. There was something that I was doing that I chose to do that was seriously dangerous, and I said I was not going to do it anymore. But it was a benefit to the plant, and he basically told me no you are going to do it and i'm like no i'm not <laughs> oh wow yeah so i was like i'm not going to do this dangerous <clears throat> thing anymore and so i sure. walked away and so I, i'm not sure why he decided to be like that but that's unfortunate yeah but i i was at the point where i could go you know i i don't have to put up with this yeah i, I can step off and do it and and i did have my wife was she had a good job to to back it up. So for those who are trying to step off and do it on their own, uh, it's not an easy way to make a living. And and (laughs) you know that. And the world is a lot different now too than it was even back then. I mean, you know, that was almost 20 years ago. Sure. It's It's a lot different now with social media and stuff. And I'm way behind on on all of that stuff i don't i don't manage to keep up <laughs> that's totally fair and yeah. i i even myself struggle to keep up but i think you did make some really good points and, and i think a big part of that uh in regards to having a a real world job or a conventional job is are the benefits the long-term benefits of potential like building up a retirement 401k or whatever you, uh kind of benefits there there's the health insurance benefits um and i think Mm-mm. especially makers who are single guys uh, who <laughs> don't necessarily have a whole lot of responsibilities going on. Don't really think about that. They just, I, and I'm speaking from my own experience. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm going to live forever and I don't need all that stuff. I'm super healthy and stuff until, but in, until the first time you get hurt and you're like, oh, hmm, yeah, think about this now. Cause that sure. was really expensive. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Come up with health issues you're not expecting. I mean, I've been there and it was like, wind up needing a quarter million dollar surgery. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know, trying to raise a family, you know how it is, raise a family and you have a mortgage and stuff. And yeah, you know, are you at a point where you can afford all that? If, if things, well, and we're, you know, guys are making, user knife, EDCs, you know, using knives and stuff, but depending on the market you pick, you know, if you're trying to make the high end stuff, there's a lot fewer customers for that. And that, that surely that, that is 
definitely where you're looking for people who have disposable income, right. disposable money, you know, and uh, yeah, those, those customers are hard to find and they are, you got to be in the business a while, make a name for yourself before you can even get their yeah, attention. And that's, that's hard. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is, is it sounds like you did a good job over the years, <clears throat> uh, building up reputation by going to shows, meeting people, shaking hands, kissing babies, all that. Um, but also developing rep friendships. And I think that's another thing that, uh, is somewhat unusual in the knife making business and not everybody gets along, but I think, uh, um, other makers do help you in a way with selling work because they introduce people to you Yes, all the time. And I think I, I used to be kind of against shows and that was probably like really honestly until like the last couple of years, I was like, it's hard to, with social media, the boom of social media and how like sales were going through social media, it's hard to justify the extra cost. But as the market um, and the knife making industry becomes flooded with more and more makers, the value of the show comes back to where you get to meet people in person. And you come from a time when that was like, that was the only way there wasn't social yeah. media. That was the only way. And so I was curious uh, to get some insight from you about doing shows because I think more and more over the next probably or already starting now, but over the next five, 10 years, shows are actually going to be just as valuable or more valuable than social media anymore because of that in-person opportunity. Yeah. Um, and so if you have any insight from your time of doing shows uh, that you can share that would help makers who are who haven't done who've only done social media and like all right wait how do i talk to people in real life <laughs> well, you know yeah i uh, of course like i say like we said here when i first started shows with all the was yeah. but the collectors back then it's like if you didn't show up at the blade show you weren't really in the business you're not a so, real maker yeah they they expect you to show up but they're wanting to spend a lot of money on your stuff but they want to know they can get their money back out of it, of it you know, at some point if they need to sell it or sure. especially the guys buying the high end art collector stuff. So they would look at you like an investment and they would come to the shows and they, they want to talk to you and find out is this guy a jerk? Cause nobody, <laughs> you know, who wants to buy a knife from somebody who's terrible personality, you know? Yeah. So they want to talk just... to you. Right. And I'll, I'll just interrupt. I've, I've iterated that a few times, uh, I think here, but as well as elsewhere. But people 100% want to spend money with somebody they like. They don't want to give money to somebody they don't like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if, if you're somebody that's not likable, then other people are probably not going to buy your work. So your stuff's not going to become collectible. So yeah. this potential buyer is going to be apprehensive about buying from you. Yeah. So they would want to see, they would want to meet you, talk to you. But then some of them, they would bring little notepads around mm. and they would look at your work and they take notes on your, on the, on your work. Oh, interesting. And then they would follow you like two or three years would come back, you know, is this guy's work expanding? Is he doing better mm. work? And, and then they go talk to other collectors and other knife makers and go, what do you think about this guy? You know? And so that was a whole different world. I, I I suppose there's still some people like that out there, you know, 
especially some of the older guys. But yeah. but I think we got into a point and still partly in a, in a place where a lot of the newer collectors, rather than spend 1500 to $2,000 to go to a show, they're just as happy meeting you on social media and sure. ordering one from you. And I'll put $2,000 into a Bowie knife instead of spending it on travel and motel rooms. So right. I think we do have two different entities, but as far as knife shows, everybody should go to knife shows as much as you can. Yeah. Makers need to go and actually pick up other people's work and learn what a good knife looks like. Uh, that, that's probably one of the greatest benefits. I mean, as, as well as meeting fellow makers yeah, and developing those relationships and those, poten- you know, those potentially growing into something in that person, maybe referring you to someone else, but seeing, like you're saying, seeing work in person is, it's not the same. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Pictures are worth a thousand words. Maybe it's, if it's a scenery or if it's a portrait or something that, but when it comes to basically a product, or piece of uh, artwork that's a hands-on piece, you got to see that in person. Yeah. It is well, not the same. <laughs> a, a photo's two-dimensional. It doesn't tell you anything about, you know, thickness, the third dimension. How thick is a handle? You know, how thick is the knife, the blade material? Uh, how, what's the balance? How does it feel in your hand, you know? And so you can't make a good knife if you don't know what a good knife looks looks like, you know? Yeah. You couldn't well, draw a picture of a tree if you didn't know what a tree looked like. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and it, you can get the the dimensions all day, but until you hold something in your hand, it is a very different experience. Absolutely, especially when it comes to balance points or or weight distribution, um, and actual like edge geometry and stuff like that. You know, yeah, some of that you can only feel. It's hard to <laughs> hit it under the micrometer to really know. You know, again, you could map it out, but what that actually looks like and feels like, especially feels like, you can't do if if you're not in person. Critical. Yep. So, so yeah, I think those are a lot of good takeaways for makers, but I think one of the greater values is definitely to polish up your interpersonal skills. Um, You know, you could be a great maker, but if you're not a great person or not a decent person, (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't matter you're a great maker because nobody wants to buy your stuff from you yeah so um but i also yeah i think developing re- uh, relationships helps with developing reputation honestly going to the show seeing work in person will also help develop your, the quality of your own work in person in general um as well as develop those relationships like we've developed um where you can reach out and lean on people um, if you have questions and are struggling at points, you know, having the, the friendships are, are awesome. Um, I oh, feel yeah. very fortunate to be able to reach out to you or many other makers and be like, hey, uh, I don't know what the hell's going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> What's the problem with this? Yeah. Well, you know, you go to shows and, and same with going to hammer ends. You got to go to the hammer ends and stuff. That's the knife maker get togethers and you learn things across the lunch table that you didn't even know you needed to know, you know, just sure. in conversation. So communicating with other makers and, and the collectors, go find out what the collectors expect of you. Yeah. Sit down with a collector and go, what are you looking for? That is a, that is a really great insight. I've never even thought 
yeah. I haven't even thought of asking a what are you what are you looking for as a collector? That's yeah. so smart. That makes so much sense. And I don't know why that's never crossed my mind. You know, I'm, I've, I'm I've just so self-indulgent, I guess. <laughs> that's a good thing. Uh uh at the hammer ends and stuff uh, we've had collectors come and go do a seminar tell us sure. what you're looking for when you look when you're thinking about buying a knife yeah what are you looking for what do you want to see what do you want to hear from the maker right we we should know that's our customers we need to yeah. know what our customers are thinking absolutely what looking for well and you just came back from a kind of a tour uh a tour de force of <laughs> or a tour de forge if you like where yeah. you you did a, a couple at least a couple different hammer ends and presentations um just over the last couple months right yeah yeah did uh steve coster's hammer in up in idaho because bruce bump bruce and i have done a joint presentation on combination weapons before and, mm -hmm. and uh bruce was going to do the demo up there and he sent me a message said hey come on up here and help me out with this demo and so i did that and then sure uh, did the Ohio super hammer in, uh, Steve Rapp was to do a demo there and he wound up with some issues and couldn't be there, but that, that was the ABS hammer in, right? Yeah. The big super hammer in that Bush, Bush Sheely put on there sure. and with the Ohio, the sofa blacksmithing group and tremendous event. Boy, it was great. But I did the demo there on the Michael Price wrap frame handles and silver. Mm metal she's and we got some pictures of those we don't yeah. have to look at them right now but we can talk about them a little bit sure. later. yeah that's cool the central states hammer in that phil evans shop in columbus kansas so oh wow so three Just, yeah that yeah. sounds exhausting yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the the ohio one wasn't planning to go there but uh our son lives in myrtle beach him and his yeah. family so we were calculating to go see the kids in Myrtle Beach anyway and Butch gotcha. called me and was like okay so went to Myrtle Beach and then swung up to Ohio and did the hammer in and two weeks and nine states and 3,000 miles and a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> um Bruce Bump's a good good guy I just met him ooh, let's see a year ago actually at, at a, a show in Nashville, the Arts and Metal show, and uh, his work is awesome. But oh, he's yeah. a really kind guy in general. Oh, very Bruce. soft spoken, humble, um, but very talented. Yeah, Bruce is incredible. I, I've known him for quite a number of years, and uh, me and him and Jay Nielsen did a hammer in up in Canada, Jim Klaus shop. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, some time ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One million years ago. No. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> when I got to really get to know Bruce and, and yeah. Kay. Kay's his wife is she's a sweet lady. She, yeah. So but they're good people and Bruce and I occasionally talk on the phone or we have emailed each other while we're building projects and right commiser commiserated over our challenges and sure. <laughs> So, because he does the cut and shoots as well. Yes, and yes. is that what you guys were presenting at Steve's? Yes, that's yeah. We were doing a joint presentation there, and uh, Bruce likes me to present a little bit on how to how to build the the lock work for the gun. So, oh, sure. So he feels like I explain it a little bit 
clearer. So that, but kind of, we just any excuse we have to get together. So <laughs> Steve Coster was willing to uh, fund it. So good time. Yeah. That was a great hammer. And uh, I Steve bet. did an awesome job. It was great. All yeah, well, I, I unfortunately, I don't know when these things are happening. Steve is just, he's in Northern Idaho. Yeah, 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 up by uh, <laughs> Ponderay, Lake Ponderay. Okay, is that's that Coeur d'Alene the, area. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just north of that. That's where uh, okay. the Navy's got the sonar base in the lake. They oh. submarines out in that big lake and do test sonars. And <laughs> I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's actually a naval base in the lake. They got a little submarine and they test sonar systems in the lake. Interesting. Yeah. I got a picture here of one of your cut and shoots. Uh, this is actually the one we used for the calendar. Yeah. And uh, let's see if it comes up here. And if you can talk, kind of describe it a little bit and walk us through what's going on with this particular piece. Okay. Well, it is obviously a flintlock. Um, pretty much everything about that, that, Weapon, it, it's all the metal work is all Damascus. Uh, even the lock, everything's Damascus. Uh, there's a, the mainspring and the sear spring on the inside are not Damascus. Okay. Could have obviously made them of Damascus, but it's like, how much would a customer pay for you to make stuff that ain't seen, you know? Sure, that's fair. But essentially all that's Damascus. It's a 50 caliber muzzleloader and then that is my first spiral welded Damascus gun barrel. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, that is, as far as most of us know, that is the first truly spiral welded uh, Damascus gun barrel that had been made since 1930. So, and where were they being made in 1930? In Belgium. In Belgium. Um, okay. That's where the Damascus gun barrel manufacturing ended up almost entirely. Uh, it was virtually wiped out in World War One. Of course, okay. When Germans invaded Belgium, they wanted to keep them from being able to make any kind of weaponry, so they destroyed the whole industry. Uh, there was a guy who started up uh, making Damascus barrels again in the 1920s, uh, Jean Delcourt Dupont. And he run the business for a number of years and basically went bankrupt. Sure. Gun manufacturers wouldn't buy the Damascus barrels anymore. And so they uh, they shut down in 1930. And I, I guess the little town they was in, they had a little celebration. This is the last Damascus gun barrel ever okay. be made and made the last barrel. Wow. Okay. And so you made this cut, cut and shoot, this spiral welded Damascus yeah. barrel when? Uh, it was like 10 years ago, 19, uh, 2013. Okay. Yeah. That's such a great piece. Yeah. And I, I got, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. 2013 blade show. I got, a the award for the best of the rest at the blade show for that right. piece. Just, but, I'm just looking at like the trigger area and, and also, just, and what is that called? Where that's kind of like the guard around the trigger. 
Well, it is, yeah, the trigger guard. It's okay. somewhat the, <laughs> the I, I'm sorry, I don't know <laughs> gun okay. nomenclature, so I'm just the, like the, I'm the, super dumb dumb right now. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm doing. The stock design is based off of there there were a lot of European uh, continental European pistols made. Okay. Uh early 1800s and that was basically the stock shape these were made in germany and belgium and some mm. in france and stuff so that was similar stock shape and the trigger guards based off of some of the patterns that i seen i mean okay it's very honestly, cool i really like just like the form the curves the lines everything flows really nice and i'm looking at least from this angle how it's attached it's got like this upward post underneath the barrel. And I'm just like, I don't know how that's even attached. Is that silver soldered? Is this all from one solid piece? And he sculpted everything with files. Like, I don't yeah. understand what's yeah, going that's, on. Here. That's one solid piece. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm laughing because it's, I, I don't even know where I would start. I don't know how long, like this would take me hours and hours. Yeah. And hours that's, that was one solid piece. And I bandsawed it. It was a rectangular bar Damascus, ladder pattern Damascus. Uh -huh. Okay. I bandsawed it down the center, stood it up on narrow edge, bandsawed yeah. it down the center, kind of like two thirds to one side, one third to the other. Okay. And then unfolded it. So the ship you see going down the buttstock was yep. the thinner side of it, unfolded and that's oh and then shaped oh. it all out. The 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 thicker part forged it up and oh it around and then pan filed and <laughs> shaped it up <laughs> oh my gosh that is so ridiculous i can't even imagine <laughs> it's so cool though that you like I would, i'd be curious what your kind of like your pr preparation and planning process is i mean are these just because you've talked about how you have kind of a, a mechanical mind and you know you used to take things apart you used to build engines when you were 12 years old like you have this mechanical mind. Are you yeah. seeing these things in 3D and then kind of you have an idea? Because for me, like when it comes to my patterns, I see what it looks like at the end, but then I have to think about all the steps and processes that I have to go through to get to that point. And I'm doing it all in my head. And I'm curious yeah. if that's what's happening for you as well. Yeah. Or if it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, <laughs> okay. at least like the things like the trigger guard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's in my head. I probably I've, I'll draw a sketch that give sure. me some dimensions so I can calculate size of the bar and all that, you know, and and work it out where I need to make the bends and such. That's all in my head. Now, wow. the lock, the flintlock mechanism. I'm going to pull I, the picture back up because this is a closer look at the flintlock. Yeah, there should be. I thought I had on my website a picture of the inside of the lock. Okay, I'll, I'll go look for that while you're talking. There's the inside of it, it and the percussion lock on the pistol I built for the NRA. Uh, but the lock work, um, I have a software app on my computer. It's, it's Corel Draw. Okay. It's actually a co commercial artist software. Um, it can save things in like CAD programs and stuff, but it's only two dimensional. But I really, I've had, I got a, it was on a computer that I bought years ago and I've bought upgrades to it. Uh, it's really pretty expensive stuff now if you go to sure. buy it outright. Yeah. But I use it a lot and I'm really good and fast with it. Okay. But 
like the lock work was totally designed on in Corel Draw, and really all my knives that I make now, everything's I design it in Corel Draw. Oh wow! Print yeah. it off, and it's like I can make patterns and print it off on paper and go glue the paper on a piece of steel and grind and cut it to the edge of the paper and the, to the lines in the pattern, you know? Yeah. So, so that's my method methodology, but, but the lock work was all completely done on Corel draw and then took the plans out to the shop and build it. And, right. But, uh, that's so cool. Yeah. It is. It's so intense. <laughs> like, <laughs> how, how long does a project like that take? That one took me six months to build. I believe in, it in its entirety. <laughs> but the, the the figuring out how to make the Damascus gun barrel, I spent about two and a half years messing around with that. And sure. And you have was, you have videos on your website of you actually going through that process uh, of me making it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a video of me welding up the Damascus for that that first gun barrel on that cutting shoe. Yeah. And then I've got a video. I I built a Damascus pistol not a combination weapon but just a percussion muzzleloader pistol oh, right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, doug ritter asked me to do that for gun rights and then it was donated to the nra for their institute for legislative action auction sure and so uh i've got a video of me building that <laughs> there's a story behind that there's a dodge city kansas uh-huh there's a museum out there the boot hill museum Okay. So not long after I'd built that pistol and had pictures of it on the internet, the curator yeah. of the museum sent me an email and she goes, wow, we've got some Damascus barrel shotguns in the museum here. I was trying to find something out about them and I found you and she goes, that's incredible that you're a Kansan and you've made this pistol. And she goes, can you make us a video that we can run on a loop that explains our Damascus shotguns. Oh, but wow. Also, but also shows your work since you're from Kansas. So I spent all this time making a video and I sent it to her and she goes, oh, that's incredible. And I never heard from her again. I don't think that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I think she left the museum. I, <clears throat> I'm betting the people out there at Boot Hill Museum don't have any idea I made that for them. And, but it's up there. I'm going to okay. share the page real quick. So you can see here, this is the top of the page. Yeah. So, so from the home page, which is culverart.com, you go to, uh, I found that page through the gallery, slide yeah. down to the bottom, gun barrels, and it kind of talks about it, a little bit of the history, like we've talked about here. It shows this one spiral uh, in the cut and shoot we've been showing. Uh, and then you have the actual, the one that's just the pistol here. Yeah. And then just, just below that, there's a couple videos yeah that's the two of, videos yeah and so this other one probably goes into the 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 damascus steel pistol build it yes. goes probably a little bit deeper into the construction and the assembly of uh the lock me mechanism and yes all that. yeah right. it goes through building the whole pistol showing me building the whole thing right <laughs> i think youtube you know i used to have comments and stuff on my them videos constantly sure and about a year, I haven't had anybody comment for a year now. And I'm like, you know. Oh, probably because it's firearms and stuff. Yeah. I, th I think YouTube has put a damper on it because no, nobody's made any comments. I haven't paid attention to the number of likes, but 
nobody's commented for a long time. Sure. <laughs> it's I'm curious about the whole history behind cut and shoots and where and where those start who start I mean I think what is it of, of course there's like bayonets on rifles that go way back but the kind of cut and shoots like what you and Bruce and other makers are starting to do more of okay um, where where does that come from okay uh if, if you want uh some written documentation on that okay blades third guide to making knots that was published, I don't know, maybe okay. five years ago, four years okay. ago. They asked me to do an article or a chapter on sure. combination weapons. So there's a whole big chapter that I wrote in there. Okay. And I included Bruce and Ron Newton and Javier Vaught and Right. So if people want to go super deep, that's where you want to go. Yeah, go get into that. But combination weapons, literally almost from the creation of firearms, People started combining the two. They're in some museum. I don't remember where it is, but there's a sword blade with a match lock gun barrel on the side of it. It was like, oh, wow. Like immediately somebody started putting them together. For sure. <laughs> so, yeah. And so there, there's all kinds of various iterations of them. In my observations, I have never seen a single combination weapon that made any sense at all. They're it's like nobody who got in either a gunfight or a knife fight felt themselves well armed with a combination weapon. <laughs> okay. It's like a pistol stock makes a lousy knife handle, and a knife handle makes a lousy pistol stock, and they're just awkward. I, I really, they became people who could do it. It's like, look what I can do. I it, see. It's a showpiece. Look what I can do. A flex. Somebody's I like, think people Look what call I... that a flex nowadays. They're like, check it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, they just do it to show off, you know. Gotcha. Like, Look, and then the people that buy them, they go, oh, look at this cool thing, you know, and totally impractical. I, mean, I see. So so it sounds like you might chalk them up to more. They're, they're like a fantasy piece in a way, but they function. Yeah. But they're not maybe necessarily, you'd probably still be better off with like an, a dedicated pistol and a dedicated knife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in your holes uh, on either side of you. And, and there were factories that got involved in it. Uh, there was a company named Unwin and Rogers, and there were others that kind of copied Unwin and Rogers that were making pocket knives that had little pistol barrels. That, at first, it was percussion barrels. And then they, they wound up when we got into rimfire guns. They had little tip-up barrels that would tip up, so you could drop a rimfire cartridge in them. And so they I were, feel like I've seen because they're like in line with the handle, right? Yeah, yeah. I've Wade Culver, at least Wade. Okay. It seems like there's more than Wade building, but Wade Colder built a, a combination weapon, uh, a replica of a Unwin and Rogers, and okay. But you can find all kinds of. There's thousands of them out there. They're are almost not even worth anything because there's so many. You, you got to find one that's really pristine. But uh, uh, Ron Newton has made a, at least a couple of those. And but uh, yeah, factories got into building the things. It was really all the rage for a long time. It was really yeah. almost World War II before all the factories and stuff quit making them. And then right. it was Bruce and Ron Newton and a few others that. <laughs> that got into making them again. And for me, 
being everybody knew I'm a knife maker and a gunsmith, so it'd be weird if I didn't make one, you know. And, <laughs> I see. <laughs> so, so I was like, what do you do? Why aren't you on the trend? Come on, like, what's going well, on? <laughs> well, yeah, but I was like, after all the cool stuff that Bruce had made and Ron Newton, I was like, what am I? What am I going to build? You know, I was like, I nobody yeah, sure. even notice what I do if I don't do something wild. Yeah. And it's like, that's why I could, where I come up with the idea of the Damascus gun barrels. And I'm like, well, nobody's doing this. I'll do that. You know? And yeah, I was, and I was like, why doesn't anybody do this anymore? And I'm like, Oh, there's why. <laughs> Cause it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's hard to do. Yeah. And I imagine it's, well, okay. So, kind of to take take a step back, you said that you your spiral welded um, barrel was probably one of the first successfully manufactured and and is usable um, since the 1930s. Yeah. And how was that um, testing that out for the first time? Was that a little scary? <laughs> well, uh, in a way, yes. Uh, 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 I had I gave it away to a buddy of mine, but I had a bullet trap that I used to test fire guns in okay. when I was uh, doing gunsmithing, and and uh, I had built the thing, but I had a, a way of mounting the barrel on the front of it, and okay. I literally built a piece was like a well, it was one inch round bar stock, and mm-hmm. I threaded to screw in the back of the barrel where a breech plate would go, okay. but then it was drilled so I could put a piece of cannon fuse in it, and so literally clamped it on the 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 barrel tra- the bullet trap thing and lit the cannon fuse and went around the other side of the shop and <laughs> wait for the explosion and i i set a video camera up you know so you can right so i could video the thing but you know gradually put more and more powder in it until honestly reached the point that i just couldn't burn any more powder in it you know but okay yeah but, i see so you were destructing destructive testing it. oh yeah you were trying to yeah. see what it would take and what yeah. so but it never came apart no and, and also when you're doing testing like that is you know i i would fire it and then i would go around and use a micrometer and check it you might make oh, sure. sure the barrel didn't swell up if it right. started to swell then you, you you hit the limit you know and yeah it never moved so it was and when, good. yeah and when you're making uh, would you still use high carbon steel or are you using a, a kind of a lower carbon, tougher steel to, to, as a combination for making the gun barrels? Well, here's the thing. Okay. Let's hear it. The first barrel on the combination weapon. Yeah. That was 1084 and 15 and 20. Okay. The pistol I built for the NA, NRA was 1084 and uh, 1018. Yeah, that this, one. This one, right? Okay. <laughs> when I started working on that one, I, I was talking to Ray Rybar in 1084 and 1018, and Ray goes, you're never going to get that that to etch so it can show a pattern. And <laughs> he was just about right. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I had a hard time getting that to etch, but that's, a, that's another little story. Because the only difference is really the carbon content? Yeah, uh, carbon content, a little bit on the alloys. I put okay. it in for, well, I had done some test etching. Okay. Well, if you notice in that photograph, if you look at the lock plate. Yes. The lock plate's also made up of the same Damascus. I got you. So, and the trigger guard as well. Yeah. Trigger anyway, guard looks awesome. I had done a little test etch on some of the a sample I made up and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's etching. 
Okay. But I didn't really check it for depth, you know, oh, didn't okay. really do that. So I put it, when I got the barrel finished, I put it in ferric chloride and it etched it for a few minutes. It was like it stopped. It wouldn't do anything else. And I'm like, it's mm. not deep enough yet. Right. And I was like, now what am I going to do? So, so then I went and put it in some hydrochloric acid. Well, okay. it etched for a little while, then it quit working. Oh, interesting. So, so then I went back to the ferric chloride, and it's like it's like fifteen cycles back and forth. It work in one for a while, then quit, and then something that about is the, bizarre. Yeah, it's not enough of a difference between the materials. Maybe I guess. Yeah, I mean, you I, obviously got a, 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 some contrast out of it. I got it there. Yeah, I, I wound up then. I got enough depth in it, then I and I didn't get you know the whatever the muck is that we call oxides which i don't think they're really oxides <laughs> whatever we create with ferric chloride etching yeah i couldn't get enough of that on it to show the pattern so i did use a cold gun blue on it to get but i had to have some depth in the pattern and i got going, you. going back and forth between the two etching solutions i got it i see but so you finally got topography then you went to the gun blue and then you pulled strokes to yeah, brighten up the highs. yeah but gotcha. here's what I learned about making Damascus gun barrels. I used okay. the hard car high carbon steels, and it's really hard to get those to weld. Oh, really? Well, you know, when we make knife blades out of it, we're stacking up a yep. stack of it and doing severe dimensional reduction on, you know, we're compressing it down, oh, restacking. Right. So you're not going a lot yep. of heat, a lot of re dimensional reduction, a lot of pressure and stuff. You wrap mm -hmm. Damascus up into a spiral that looks like a compressed coil spring for a gun barrel. You can't yeah. do that kind of dimensional reduction. You you can only tap on it a few times. Right. And the other thing is you can't ever let it cool off. If it cools off in an area that uh, it's not welded yet, it'll form forge scale in there and you'll never yep. get it cleaned out. So. Wow. Part of my videos, you'll see, I built this little tiny forge. It's like a little chimney. And I'm actually welding those spiral turns inside that little forge. It never comes out of that forge until I've gone down the length of the whole barrel. I remember watching that. Actually, even before I met you, yeah. I watched that. And I was like, whoa, what a cool... I mean, I thought it was a genius solution, honestly. And I'm, I was actually looking at them again last night. And I was watching the video with my wife a little bit trying to as I was going through and picking up other pictures to put on the to, to pull yeah. in I was like man what a smart setup it was a it's a great solution I feel like it's I mean I'm sure it was a lot of work to put everything together but it was elegant honestly very smart once everything's put yeah. together super smart and worked really great it looks there, like there's something else that's not in either of the videos I, it's not like I'm okay. trying to keep it as a secret but um just time constraints you know, sure. when you bend metal around something, it mm -hmm. stretches. It's like yes. it forms kind of a pivot point in the middle of the bar. Everything mm -hmm. underneath the pivot point is compressed and gets wider. Everything above right. the pivot point gets narrower. It gets stretched. Oh, interesting. So it comes becomes yeah, somewhat like, trapezoidal. Like a truncated cone type shape that, you know, yeah. it's got angled yeah. like so. So, yeah. When I was, I'm wrapping Damascus around a 5 8 inch diameter mandrel and mm. wrapping around a mandrel that tight, I had all this distortion. And so once I sure. got it wound together, the, the narrow tops on them 
I, I've got all these big gaps between the turns. Right. And I could never get those closed up. It was like virtually impossible. And I, I can't tell you oh, how no. much Damascus I wrecked trying to. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> well, I mean, you said you worked on it for like two yeah. and a half years. Well, oh, finally, I was like, so to get the technique. Well, I was like, I got to do something to change this. And I thought, well, so I, I was welding this Damascus up, two, two twisted rods welded together and then formed that yeah. up. I was doing a half inch thick by five eighths wide is what I wanted the, the, the material to be wound to be. But then it would yep. do this weird stretching thing. So mm -hmm. I wound up making a pair of die, a set of dies for my, my hydraulic press. And I okay. actually was welding the ribbon stock up, the stuff I was going to wind. And I'm pressing it to the opposite shape. Oh, interesting. So it's narrow on the bottom. Anticipating the, yeah. yeah. And so I would wind it with the narrow edge on the bottom, which would compress and get wider and the top would narrow. And it would pull up straight and I'd, I would have perfectly straight sides when I got done winding it on the mandrel. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, and part of something I've been thinking about lately is like uh, in regards to how barrels were welded. And obviously there's a video yes. I think you link to through your website to a website called uh, Damascus Knowledge. Yes. And they have a video on there showing, or actually, oh gosh, is it on that I, website that has the I do, the guys forging? The, that's Dr. Drew Howes that owns Damascus okay. Knowledge. It is like yeah. the only place where you can find information on Damascus gun barrels. But I yeah. don't, last I knew, Drew did not have that video link there. It's on YouTube. Okay. If you, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if you look old, look for Damascus gun barrels on YouTube, if it'll come up or not. That That's actually yeah. a pirated copy of the original. Okay. You know, I talked about that. That's a whole nother long story, but, yeah. but <laughs> the, the thing that I learned and, and part of this was researching through Dr. Drew. He's a good friend of mine now through all our research together. Those old gun barrels were made of a combination of wrought iron and very, very low carbon steel. It was it was almost pure iron. Oh wow! They okay. never used flux. Those it was okay. But see, the modern steels that we use have got all the alloys in them, and I think the alloys slow down the process, the the metallic bonding process that is what we create in forge welding, mm -hmm. and then the the wrought iron and low carbon steel mix or low alloy mix is really soft and there if you go to my youtube channel there's a couple of videos on there of me reforging okay. an old gun barrel blank oh wow okay um if you look around the museums you will see a lot of old pistols made mid 1800s in europe dueling pistols, target pistols, and they have Damascus gun barrels. Mm -hmm. There's very little documentation left about any of that process work was done back then, but what little we have mostly talks about making shotgun barrels. Okay. So there's a gun collectors forum called doublegunshop.com. You can get on the forum. It's kind of like blade forum for antique gun collectors. There's like a okay. thousand people on there anytime, night or day, you know, 
Oh, but wow. I used to be on there a lot, and guys asked me, where did all the pistol barrels come from? And my theory is that there had to be a number of the shotgun barrel tubes that they welded up that had a flaw in them. Sure. Couldn't make a shotgun tube, but you could resell them and use the materials. And I was like, okay, go back to my process and tell you, right. I was winding Damascus on a 5 8 inch diameter mandrel. But I'm making 45 and 50 caliber barrels. Sure. And you've got to drill drill out to get all those. That's an ugly hole you wind up with. You've got to drill a lot of material out. So I'm having a, yeah. I'm welding the spiral up and then fo okay. forging the outside of the tube until I drive it down to only about an eighth inch diameter hole in the middle down okay. the bore and then drilling it out. Okay. So I'm going pistol barrels. They're taking shotgun tubes, taking a chunk of that and, and forging it down to smaller diameter for a pistol bore type size. Yeah. So there is a gentleman in England. His name's Peter Dyson. He's got a website, peterdyson.com. You can get on there. He has run all over Europe and bought, uh, gathered up unfinished Damascus barrel tubes. And you can order them from his website. And he sells them, just full-length tubes, short pieces and stuff. Anyway, I got to know Peter. And I was I run into him at a knife show, gun show thing out in Las Vegas some years back. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him about his, his barrels tubes there. He goes, yeah, guys keep wanting to make pistols out of these things, but the bores are too big. And I said, well... Here's what you got to do. You just forge them down smaller in diameter. And so he picked up a foot long piece of, of barrel tube forging. He handed it to me. He goes, so go make me a pistol barrel. So, so <laughs> I took it home and yeah. I forged it up and I videoed the whole thing. There's, there's a, a one hour long, absolutely everything I did along with some commentary and a shorter right. one that's like 36 minutes. But I videoed the whole thing. And my point was, because I knew I got it done, I sent it back to Peter, and he was like, oh, I'm going to ship you a whole case of barrel tubes to, to reforge. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so I, said, I, I put up the video on YouTube. Go find, I said, any good blacksmith can do what I did. Go find a good blacksmith over in England, have them watch the video, and they can do this for you. So I see it here. That's yeah. the reason that's up so, there. It's a, it's a technique that blacksmiths use for reducing pipe yeah. or tubing right yeah it's a usually it's a v-block on the bottom yeah and then they're just gently simple blacksmithing so i i created yeah. all that for peter but you can watch the videos but here's what i learned that okay. combination of wrought iron and low car or low alloy steel it was it was frighteningly soft it was like forging bubble gum oh my goodness <laughs> okay and, and I even broke one of the original spiral welds. It broke during the forging process. And I threw a little bit of anhydrous borax on it and a few taps. And I mean, it just welded back up. That oh, would have wow. been fatal on my modern steels. I'd have never Carbon got that steel. to weld back up. Sure. So it was like those guys had the ultimate dream material for making Damascus gun barrels. Right. We don't have wrought iron now, you know. I've got a bunch of wagon sure. tires and stuff, and but 
I got a couple, I got one of those. Yeah, too. but it's like dubious quality, you know, what is this stuff? You know, I was like, and, and there is a book that W.W. Greener from Greener Shotgun Company, he wrote about 1880. It's called uh, The Modern Gun and Its Manufacture. Okay. He's got a little information in there on making Damascus barrels, but he talks about how much they struggled to find uh, wrought iron and the steel components that would work together and etch out properly is like there was a certain specification of these materials and if they didn't get what they needed, they couldn't get to Damascus to work. So it's like, it's kind of frightening. You know how much work sure. it is now messing with the, with the patterns, the idea of spending all right. that time with the wagon tire material and praying that you come up with some kind of pattern at the end of all the hours and, so, right. So it's like I I do want to try it some more, but no guarantees if it'll work. You know. Yeah. There are. So I wanted to. I'm going to share a, a frame. I did pull up. I found the 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 video, and this used to be available through that website that you have linked on your on your web on your website, but it, the 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 domain is out of date. It doesn't work anymore. But this page or this video was linked on that page, I believe. And it's called Canons de Masse uh, La Fabrication. Yeah, that's French. Fa uh, fabrication. Because in Belgium, they speak French. But anyways, it's a great video. It's 25 uh, minutes long. It's And it's really old. It's got, <laughs> it's like silent, classic silent film yes. with, uh, with the, all of the, let's see, I'm going to pull the volume down. Um, but we'll play this just a little. Um, I don't know. Can you? I, I guess I turned the volume. It doesn't matter. You don't need to listen to it because it's just music in the in the credits. But uh, it show it goes through the whole like, um, you yeah. Know, they're in this village in Belgium where they show the process. It's interesting. The blacksmiths sometimes are looking at the camera like what is this level <laughs> yeah it, our secrets um <laughs> it's pretty interesting if, if but, you go through that um one of the things is the, the yeah. gun barrel blacksmiths the guys that welded these up they did not make the damascus all that was made in big okay. boundaries rolling mills and stuff and then yeah. a merchant brought the the rods around there were three eighths inch square rods about four feet long and you see some in this this video these sure. guys would come to the villages where the forges were uh, barrel welding was a cottage industry and yeah the blacks the blacksmiths would buy the different pattern rods and then would make them into barrels and then a different guy would come around and buy the welded tubes at the, at the villages yeah. and he would sell them to the gun manufacturers so Mm. This video was made by a museum in 1928. It was actually a series of documentaries about the lifestyle. Of, there's, there's the rods right there. Oh, yeah. It was a... Yeah, they look like they're maybe three, maybe four feet long. I keep yeah. Saying, yeah. They, um, this, this museum did a bunch of videos about lifestyle in this section of Belgium and, you know, doing laundry, all the different crafts and stuff. And barrel welding was one of them that they did. Uh, I think the barrel, uh, 
That was in 1928, and this is John Dupont Delcour's workshops, the, the guy that made the last barrel in 1930. It was his mm -hmm. workshops if, or his quiz. Oh, wow. So, so okay. anyway, uh, that museum evidently went defunct. Uh, the, the, the videos went to the Curtius Museum, which is in Liege, Belgium. Okay. A fellow by the name of Pete Miklajunas, he's, uh, he's American, lived by around Chicago, went to the Curtius Museum and bought the rights to distribute this, this video. And he made CDs, and he used to have a website that was damascusbarrels.com. And he sold the videos there. I have a copy of it. He sold it in CDs. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, right away, people started pirating them and putting them on YouTube. And hence what we're watching. Yeah, right what's what we're watching. <laughs> and Pete bought it for a while, but Pete's health was failing. Pete passed away a couple years ago. Right. But I talked, I knew Pete quite well and talked to him. And he said, you know, uh, I don't have long in this world and all I've got is my CDs. And it's just as well that it's out there on YouTube for the world to have. And so he knew about the pirating. He was good at, in the end that it's out there for the world to share. And so that's sure. the story of the video. But yeah. Yeah, it's a great video. It's very interesting to watch and to see the techniques. Right now, they are welding, I think, three or four bars yeah. together. <laughs> and they're just tapping them. Um, it's a, a lead blacksmith, probably the master, and mm -hmm. then his apprentice. Um, and they're just kind of tapping them together, kind of massaging the material. They're working out of a coal forge. Um, they're even <laughs> using tongs to help kind of squeeze and align things. Yeah, they, if you watch the video, of course, Whoever did the video and edited the, the little segments and put it together, if you're watching and paying attention, they're out of sequence. Or, <laughs> and oh, Pete sure. and I talked about it at one point. Maybe I should go through and re-edit re it and put it all in proper sequence. And I, we never got around to that. One thing yeah. that's interesting, you'll see in a segment here, it might be coming up, the head blacksmith, he pulls the barrel, barrel tube out of the forge and he blows through it. And you'll see a slug of something fly out on the ground. Okay. And there's another little clip later on where he's putting the tube back in the forge and there's little bullet shaped things sitting on the edge of the forge and he slams the barrel tube down over it. Those are clay plugs for the purpose of keeping mm. the, the heat and the fire from blowing up the bore of the tube and, and eroding the bore from the heat. Oh, I but see. You'll see that show up in there. So, but that was a little thing that I caught in there that nobody had noticed. But plug in the <laughs> tube at some point. And... Yeah. Well, and also at some point they have the mandrel that they're wrapping around, but they also have a thin, maybe tin foil that's that wrapped around it too to keep the material, I think, from welding to the mandrel. Oh uh, well, okay. <laughs> that is called a chemise which is the French okay. word for sleeve. Um, sleeve, okay. The Belgians, I, and that's part of the video I did for, for Peter Dyson. Mm -hmm. The chemise, it, it will not, it has nothing to do with welding. Uh, oh, okay. You're, you're throwing a mandrel inside the tube. Yeah. Well, the mandrel is room temperature. And as soon as you put a mandrel inside the tube, it starts sucking heat out of the inside of the tube. 
and dro- everything okay. drops below forge welding temperature in a matter of two or three seconds. So right. weld, and a lot of people speculated that and come up with that idea. Here's my theory. Okay, let's you, hear it. You see the Belgians welding, wrapping that material up, and they actually do it in two sections. They, there's two different pieces of what they call it ribbon that they wind. Yeah. And there's a scarf weld in the center of that tube. But the tube is so long and it's weighty, and I think they're using the chemise to add structural support to it while they're handling it. It's just to strengthen the thing up so during all the I handling see. it doesn't fold up on itself. I see. Um, that was the process that the, yeah, you'll see that it's coming up here pretty soon where they do the winding. In Greener's book, he talks about the, the Belgians used a chemise. The British did not. Greener, Greener company made barrels for a while too. They would weld it up in like 12 foot, 14 inch long sections. And then they would jump weld like three sections together after they had these shorter sections welded up. But Greener, okay. that's where they're putting on the chemise right there. It says mm-hmm. 10. Uh, Mikola Junis put all the captions in. I don't know why he chose the word 10, but we discussed that's not what it was. It was iron. Oh, yeah, okay. it was iron. Anyway, Greener talks about that. that and I would have loved, I, I, I want to take a Greener barrel and cut it apart and find those welds where they jump welded the sections together and look at that weld. Okay. Like, how did they do that? Was it a flat jump weld? Was there some kind of taper and cone to it? I, I sure. don't know, but I'm curious about that. But anyway, I, I think that's why the Belgians did it because they welded, you know, they were putting together a four foot long tube. And yeah, here's the wrapping part where they wrap it around it's the such a good, Yeah, it's such a good approach. I, yeah. <laughs> first time I saw this, I was like, oh, duh. Well, <laughs> this makes so much sense. And you'll see during the welding process, the master smith has got a gauge thing that he feels the outside right. of the tube. What he's yep. doing there, they're doing the same thing I had to do. They're wrapping it on a mandrel big enough to get the job done, but eventually they yep. got to forge that tube smaller in diameter so they can drill it out and finish it out. He's measuring the outside of the tube, knowing how thick his ribbon is so he can gauge the bore diameter on the inside. Right. So, yeah, and this is where they're, they're they're uh well they're continuing the wrapping and then pretty soon here you'll see them make the scarf weld on it. But yeah. it's pretty fascinating. It's the, it's super fascinating to to watch. The, the helper guy cracks me up watching him. He's smoking his pipe the whole time. He's oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watched. So I was just down working with Steve Schwarzer, and uh, the the Smith just came out of the shop with the the fully wrapped. Yeah. Um, but I think there's still more consolidation work oh, yeah. that at this point that needs to be yeah. done. But anyways, Steve had never seen this video before and he just thought it was fascinating yeah. and cool to see Schwarzer. such an old video. Yeah. And I don't know what to do. So now he's, got the doing. he's got the gauge for figuring the outside of the, yeah. you know, the diameter of it. But, but yeah. Yeah. There, there's a few people that wrote stuff on Damascus barrels, and, and even Greener wrote some in that book. Um, 
Mm -hmm. These guys were not blacksmiths, and a lot of what they wrote was pure crap. <laughs> oh, okay. Good <laughs> and to even know. Greener, Greener kind of talks crap on the Belgian barrels during during the work, but even by 1903, Greener quit making his own barrels and just bought Damascus barrels from Belgium. So, sure. There's where they see that well, right it, there where the guy kind of stabbed it on the. That's where he was yeah. putting the, the plug in it. I got you. But and some something you mentioned earlier what, that I thought was really interesting is that but but before World War, I think you said World War One, the, these barrels were in fashion. They were being produced yeah. um, like crazy, and then they the the villages where this work was being done was destroyed. This one guy afterward was that greener. Uh, you were Dupont. saying Dupont. Sorry, uh, started <clears throat> making gun barrels again. But it didn't sound like people were interested in getting them. What happened? Like, what did they just go out of fashion, or was there some sort of negative kind of marketing around them, saying that like they that they weren't actually very strong? Yes. Or, or, yeah. What happened? Um, up until about World War One, really, the reason for the Damascus barrels was for shotgun tubes. Okay. There really wasn't such a thing as wing shooting birds up until the early 1800s. Uh, and then people got the idea of loading, like, you know, shot into, into guns and trying to shoot a bird on the fly. Well, the barrels okay. back then were made out of wrought iron and they were really heavy and the, the guns sucked for that. <laughs> they needed sure. a gun that would swing nicely, which meant they needed thin you. barrel tubes. And okay. the old wrought iron could not support the, the explosion uh, if you made it thin and steel back then mm. they didn't have a good process for making steel. They, they could make, they could make steel and they could pour it, but if they pour it into an ingot as it cooled it, it would actually like self-destruct. It would crack on the inside. So they couldn't make, make good steel. Interesting. And so that they were under a lot of stress as they were. Cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it would, it would crack on the inside. You know how everything shrinks as it as it cools down. Right. And the steel back then would just crack on the inside. It, it wasn't until mm -hmm. it was actually, I think it was Krupp that come up with it first in Germany. That if you see some old gun barrels that say fluid steel on them, they okay. come up with a process of somehow using hydraulic compression on the ingots as they were cooling to compress them and keep them from wrecking themselves. But it was it was an extremely right. expensive process. But anyway, what they found out is they can make thin barrel tubes out of this pattern welded Damascus stuff and, okay. and make proper shotguns out of them. And that was the whole point of making these these barrel tubes out of Damascus yeah. was, was for shotguns, for, for guns that were light, thin tubes, so they swing nicely for wing shooting birds. So, okay. they, you know, they wound up with a, there was a, there's a few Damascus barreled rifles out there. Uh, the, the Damascus pistols that were made continental Europe. Uh, uh, and again, I'm saying all those was made from these tubes that had something wrong with them or, you know. Make, you know <laughs> sure. Make, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Most of the materials there already. It's just yeah. after six or eight inches, there's a flaw. Yeah. What do yeah. you do? There's a... Do you trash it or do you make something yeah. smaller? 
It's just like a lot of makers now are like knife makers don't make mistakes. They just make small. Yeah. Knives. Yeah. Kind of the same thing. And you, know, <laughs> you can see how intense that work is. There you see where the guy was blowing the plug out of the end of it. But yeah. anyway, um, but there was a, all when Germany invaded Belgium in World War One, they wanted to put them out of well out of business, you know, make a weapon. So they destroyed everything and yeah. They burned all the foundries and they burned the paperwork got burned up. And so there's there's no mm. documentation out of Belgium. There you see the guy blowing the plug out of it. But anyway, so all we got really is the stuff that Greener wrote and anything else that was written was pretty much guys rewriting what Greener wrote. But Greener wasn't a blacksmith. I mean, he knew a part of his process and well, and Truth in advertising wasn't such a big thing back then either. So, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, some of what Greener wrote was a, a little braggadocious and probably not even true, you know. So, yeah, kind of yeah. take it with a grain of salt. So, I'm really, I mean, uh, there were a few guys that messed around with Damascus gun barrels and, uh, yeah. and, and did some stuff. Chuck Patrick did a little bit of work with it and, Bill okay. Fiorini did back in the day. Fiorini was taking a wrap in Damascus around a solid rod and, okay. and turning out something like a gun barrel. That's really hard to do because you wrap it around a solid rod and then bring it up to welding heat, your wrap material welds to the rod first in the forge. Yeah. Well, then you can't easily move it to close up the gaps between the turns of the wrap material so mm, right um heinz denig a blacksmith in germany did the same thing and they managed to come up with some, some gun barrels but you cannot recreate the old patterns by doing that it's got to be laid up the wraps got to be laid up side by side just like they do on here in this video or yeah. you can't accurately rep recreate what they did so Right. My whole point was to accurately recreate what they're doing and like I got to do it just like they did. So that's why I work so hard at yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it is really interesting to watch this and also to kind of have your color commentary at the same time and telling the history and the stories of it. Um, there's that assistant smoking his giant yeah, pipe yeah. <laughs> it's so funny uh, and it's but it's cool it, i mean the way they're doing it here does seem to be honestly it, the the most effective way they they start out by roughly wrapping it around a mandrel and then they proceed to then weld all that material together yeah. but it is a very very labor-intensive process right. uh and i'm sure there's all kinds of like you got to be watching your temps and like you said putting that clay that at the end to help keep it from getting burned up down yeah. there um yeah it's really it's really interesting anyways i think this video is oh i think the next step is for them to etch it and yeah. grind it well and that's the other thing to take into consideration is like after you wrap it and you do all the forge welding you're watching engaging because then you still have to grind and cut yes. into it right yeah you know to reveal the pattern yeah that's one of the things that, <laughs> at the core you know uh i spent a lot of time on double gunshot forums explaining how these were made to the the guys who collect them and own them oh well, you you mentioned why did they quit buying them um so the industry was wiped, wiped oh, yeah, out yeah, yeah. in world war one del coeur mm -hmm. dupont 
set up the shops and tried to make them again later. But by the 1920s, now they figured out how to, well, they had World War One, and yeah. the, the countries that were in the war threw money into, let's figure out how to make steel gun barrels. Well, by this time, they're making machine guns and they got to have good steel barrels. And so we had a world right. war. So anyway, everybody figured out how to make steel gun barrels and the gun manufacturers now can make their own steel barrels and did not have to buy Belgian barrels. And so, and, and then Delcourt DuPont could not supply all the Damascus barrels necessary for all the, sure. So anybody, so he couldn't supply them, but two, the gun manufacturers still had customers who wanted the pretty Damascus barrels. Yeah. And they didn't want to have to supply them. So they actually run a smear campaign and all the gun magazines and the newspapers and stuff going, oh, those Damascus barrels are dangerous. You don't want to shoot those. And part of what helped to convince people is before World War I, there was really no specifications on shotgun cartridge length. So you had okay. you had two inch long cartridges and two and nine sixteenths and two and a half. You had to buy the shells that fit the chamber in your gun. So yeah. around World War One, they standardized two and three quarter inch shotgun shells. That's what everybody was going to. So you had people buying two and three quarter inch shotgun shells and jamming them in two inch chambers and shooting them and blowing up these Damascus gun barrels. And so these people who wanted to smear it, they were showing all these pictures of blown up Damascus barrels going, see, they're not safe. And to convince customers not to ask for Damascus gun barrels anymore. So Uh in fact, there are now thousands of people collectors around the world who own hundred year old and more old damascus barrel shotguns and shoot them all the time and they have damascus barrel trap shoots and yeah that's they're perfectly safe with the right cartridges you know right so they're that's so ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) because i can't imagine that the damascus was really that large of a market anyways like you were saying there weren't that many people making yeah well and so yeah how could you be so threatened by well uh that you have to run a smear campaign because not everybody can afford them anyway yeah well they just want people to quit asking for them because they just want them to buy their steel barrels and quit asking for damascus barrels they they didn't want to go back into business of making them and del coor he couldn't supply everybody's needs for it so sure I mean, there was a lot of, well, like Dyson went around and I don't know when he did it in the nineties, maybe went around Europe and bought these two. He said in Belgium, he goes, you go to anybody's house and everybody has Damascus napkin rings on their dining room tables. Cause (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, for sure. All these tubes laying around, they, they chop, they make different stuff out of them and everybody's got Damascus napkin rings and that the, is so these funny. these barrel tubes are scattered all over the countryside, and he just went around, <clears throat> bought them up for scrap metal price, and right. I don't know how many he's got. And for a while, um, Greener Shotgun Company is isn't yeah. never went out of business, but it's back in family ownership again. Uh, it was a family company. At some point, they were sold, 
I don't know who owned them, but but Graham yeah. Greener, a descendant of the Greener family, bought it again, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And he was having, you could buy, I think you still can, buy a brand new Greener shotgun and you can get Damascus tubes supplied for it. Oh, wow. And what he's doing is buying tubes from Peter Dyson. There's a oh. gentleman in England by uh, that he, Dyson is sending these tubes to and having him mm-hmm. bore those tubes out and then send okay. them back to Greener. And Greener's chambering them and putting them together. And, and uh, Oh, wow. So they're historic gun barrels yeah. that have been laying around being re finally finished out yeah basically. these tubes have got to be they're made before oh, wow. world war one probably i mean oh wow so dupont cool. delcour dupont made some but we have no identification on we don't know where they come from you know they're just raw sure. tubes and and i i've bought tubes from dyson and i mean they still got oh, hammer marks so in them you know that come on a blacksmith yeah, shop but, yeah i just pulled up uh i pull i did pull up peter dyson's website it's Peter Dyson spelled D-Y-S-O-N dot co dot UK. Yeah. And um and he does, he's got a website up there and it's got guns, rifle, pistols, and yeah, he's got all this different stuff. Um that is so intriguing. What part of me like wants to just go and buy a barrel. Yeah. <laughs> they're fun to play with. They're they're not even that expensive. Like, oh, oh I see. And they're kind yeah. of expensive. But about three hundred dollars for a Oh, 18, yeah, I'm 18 seeing two uh, foot long piece. Yeah, I'm seeing 350 pounds, and I don't know what the exchange is right now, yeah. but but still, that's kind of cool price to pay for something like something with that kind of history, especially after watching that video. And Mike actually jumped in saying, "Such a fascinating process. How much of this historical process informed um, informed you on your on your process for making the spiral weld of Damascus. Well, I did watch the video. Uh, of course, got in. I got in touch with Pete Michalajunas, who had the video, and Dr. Drew House, who's got Damascus Knowledge. It's Damascus-Knowledge.com. It's in Google Docs. Uh, oh, yeah. That is like the compendium of all the world's knowledge on Damascus Gumbert. So right. I talked to both of those guys extensively and watched the video, but mm-hmm. at that when I con- contacted them, they pretty much ex- all the, all the gun collectors figured this to be a lost art. Nobody's ever going to figure out how to do this again. And I contacted them. I go, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to do this again because I want to make them. And they were kind of like, yeah, let us know how that goes for you, you know. <laughs> and, sure. And so I did it. I made the, the little bitty pistol barrel, you know. It's only four inches long. And, and right. I sent it to Drew Howes, a picture of it and a video of my video of doing it. And up to that point, I didn't know anything about the, the mask, uh, doublegunshop.com forums. And right. he put it up there and sent me a link to it. And all these people are like, oh, my gosh, this guy did it. And I'm like, really? It's that cool? I'm like, <laughs> so. It's pretty yeah, cool. Um, but I guess really the most of it is, yeah, I watched the video and then kind of sorted out my own process. You know, you, yeah. you got to have the mandrels and all that. And and then I built it. Of course, I'm doing it in propane forges. They They were actually using charcoal forges back then which really i think yeah. probably a lot easier 
you can sure. you can localize your heat a lot better than using a big old propane forge. That was that actually right. become an issue for me, but I can imagine there's some potential uh, control issues by just from the kind of restraints of having to heat up a large area rather than being able to, like yeah. you're saying, localize it and have a small area. You know. Well, that was, I was trying to use my big Damascus welding forge initially for welding up yeah. a tube. And, yeah. you know, I, I could get the ends of the spiral wrap welded, but I could never get the middle welded. What I mm, figured out was right. I'm having to put the whole tube or a whole wrap piece in my forge, bring the entire thing up to welding heat. So I'm bringing it out and pounding on the ends of it and the soft ends are absorbing all my, my impact, all my hammer blows. Because the force isn't transferring through. Exactly. The I couldn't get enough energy transferred to the middle. That's yeah. why I made up that little bitty forge, which it's like, the the chimney on it's yeah. like two and an eighth inches <laughs> diameter you know it was, yeah. it was cast around a piece of pvc pipe with a little cross through so i can heat up like two inches at a time and then yeah. i never take it out i got the adjustable anvil plate on the back of it that i can set up so i can drive it against and and walk my way down the barrel tube so, right <laughs> but yeah right I could not ever get the center turns welded. And I I would literally spend so much time beating and hammering and reheating on it that I would just oxi oxidize away the, the whole wrap thing. And finally, mm -hmm. the, I, I made up the whole outside of it's gone and I'm down to where I don't have anything left because I I can't get it welded, you know? So yeah, I wrecked a whole lot of Damascus trying to make gun barrel tubes out of it. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, right. I've yeah, I believe it. Uh, and oh gosh, I think you were starting to say something else, and and uh, I actually kind of interrupted you <laughs> uh, with Mike's question. I guess I'll I'll follow up with Mike's other question real quick while we're while we're kind of answering a couple questions. He says, uh, "You mentioned that cut and shoots are are impractical and showpieces and kind of more of showpieces. What are your current favorite projects?" That you work uh, that you uh like and are enjoying working on okay well i right now i consider myself to be like semi-retired uh okay. i don't really uh, i've got customers out there waiting for me to make something for them one of these days i, I hope I, mm -hmm. I live long enough to get back to them <laughs> but right now uh, i'm i'm having fun making stuff for my kids and grandkids i got i got four kids and their spouses and 11 grandkids and right. i made stuff for all of them yet so right right sure. now i'm making stuff for them and i'm having a blast because i'm making what i want to make so i'm making complicated yeah. stuff and so like well gee if i say all this what i'm making all the hair then my grandkids watch this they'll know what i'm working on won't they <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey grandpa's working on a knife for me <laughs> you just got to keep the link away yeah. from them for a couple more yeah. years or whatever but, but anyway so i'm making stuff for them but i i, I do have several cool items in the works that i'm working on that maybe they do know about i'm working on a on a cut and shoot piece but uh and, and also an automatic with a, a release mechanism that i've not seen anybody do and and they're fairly complicated i'm wondering if i'm as smart as i think i am because i'm kind of struggling with the mechanicals on them but 
<laughs> I see. But I'll get there. But yeah, I got some really, I've got a, a mosaic Damascus Bowie knife I'm working on for somebody. And it's actually okay. a piece of, well, the chain pattern stuff. Oh, right. I, okay. I uh, was working on a chain pattern that was in the Damascus gun barrels. And uh, it, yeah. my, my attempt was a near miss. It was close. But you have to weld up a monstrous billet of it, or I did. And so I had all this Damascus that I'm like, now what am I going to do with this? Because I don't want to do do that pattern again. So I stuck it in my press and mashed it in. I actually split it in my press, mashed it all up, re-welded it, twisted it, and welded the rods up uh, into a Bowie knife blade. So it looks really cool now. Four-weight it. Yeah. So... I'm well in the building it. I should have it down pretty soon. So, yeah. But, um, and you said that you're kind of stepping away. Well, I mean, it's, I sound, I mean, I guess it sounds like you got to cut and shoot. You're kind of, working yeah. On. Um, but are you, are you wanting to keep, keep doing that work? Cause I, I was just like, I'm doing the math now in my head and you're a couple of years from being 70. Yeah. And which is, Excuse my language, but it's fucking impressive. <laughs> Sorry, grandkids. Yeah. I am super impressed, and um, and you're still rock and rolling, which honestly inspires me that I can for still another thirty, maybe forty years, be rocking and rolling and doing this kind of work and continuing to innovate and continue. It's it's impressive that you're continuing to innovate and you have these new ideas and still coming up with new stuff. Um, it's I mean, it doesn't seem like you're slowing down, but maybe just like with the frequency of builds you're doing a year or something like that, maybe you're slowing down. But I don't know. It's really, it's really uh, inspiring, honestly. Well, to me. thank you. And I doing this work. Um, I, I'm not doing the knife shows like I was because, like I said, I, sure. right now I'm not really wanting customers, but I certainly don't want to be out in the business and you know, like going to hammer ins and stuff and teaching and i've got uh several local guys that i'm mentoring along so spend time with them uh as far as the shop work uh, i gotta entertain myself i can't sit around i just i gotta do something to entertain myself and as you get older you find out your brain doesn't age is it you look in the mirror and go who's that old guy you know and (laughs) but it still works the same you you just on the outside you're looking yeah yeah you're like who's that you know and, and <laughs> I, a lot of people know I did have some serious health issues here sometime back. And that kind of kind of yeah. wakes you up to you have a good chance of dying and get through it. And you, you're like, oh, wow. Right. You know, the thing with making stuff for the grandkids is like, hey, old man, <laughs> you haven't been thinking about your time getting short, you know. And I was like, I better get right. on that, you know. But yeah, but you know how it is making custom knives. and doing what the customer wants and there's there's stuff you just don't get around to doing and and so i yeah i'm doing the things i wanted to do and i'm just having the more fun i've ever had now but but yes the as you get older the the heavy shop work gets more difficult and just wears you out quicker so yeah i've had a well and i'm having to do not like our our home is falling apart but home maintenance projects I had to put off. I, sure. You got your honey-do list well, still. Yeah. I've, you know, I've had four major surgeries in the last five and a half years. And 
each one right. of those was four months of recovery. And so the last right. five and a half years, I spent 16 months sitting on the couch. Well, things get behind and you get out of shape. And so, but sure. No, right now I'm doing great. No worries. You know, I'm glad like to hear everybody's got some little health issue. They got to be concerned about. And I do a couple things, but no reason to be concerned and I'm doing great. And, but staying busy and having a blast. Good. I have a picture of your, as you refer to it, your near miss yeah. uh, that I pulled off your website of the chain pattern. Yes. And this is, is this a coffin handle yes. buoy? Yes. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about this piece <laughs> and when you built it? I built that several years ago and I still have it laying around. Um, what? Yeah. Well, as you see, you see all that nice nickel silver <clears throat> dead space all over that handle frame. Okay. My full intention was to fully engrave all that before I put it together. Oh, I and I had a knife show coming up and I thought, oh, I need another knife on the table. I'll go ahead and put the handle on this. And I, see. I was like, oh, now I'm going to hate engraving that. That's going to be difficult. And, <laughs> and yes, I could, I could pay somebody to do it, but I'm like, no. Nah. But I still had it. It's still in my, knife, in my gun safe. And But the pattern, yeah, that's that was my near attempt, uh, close encounter with chain pattern. Um, mm -hmm. Chain pattern has a center stack of flat materials in the middle of the billet. Right. My error was that my center stack was physically too large in relation to the full dimension of the billet. Oh, and okay. my pieces that form the chain link were too, they were made out of too thin a material and too outboard in the stack. They were too close to the outer edges. Mm -hmm. And so when it was twisted, it pulled the links out into the little corners of the, in the corners of the, of the wrap. Clip. And so right. it distorted my chain links. And <clears throat> so it was close, but yeah. not quite. But that taught me the error of my ways, what I needed to change. <laughs> and is that what gave birth to this, this uh, diagram? Um, yes. Working of that? Yes, partly it is. Um, okay. I think that's, I think, yes, that looks like the illustration that is the correct pattern. Okay. Um, when I made that knife, I had not seen this yet. Sure. I had figured all that pattern out and I had all the pieces right. Wow. I just had the dimensions wrong. Just sure. reverse engineered it by looking at photos of, of yeah. gun barrels. Um, if we get around to talking about the Thor software. Yeah, we'll talk about it now. Well, the, um, there is a software that you can download that will show you what your billet's going to look like after you twist it. And you, it will allow you to display it at different grinding depths. What's it going to look like as you grind it down through the depths? It's called Thor, and the latest version is Thor 2. I'm going to do a screen share real quick. just to, Okay. The link isn't uh, a viable link on your website, but this does give people an idea of what you're kind yes. of talking about, which is with this uh, screenshot. Yeah. Um, this software, I actually learned of it uh, I'm from, I'm talking and drawing a blank here. 
the guy in Argentina. Uh, Manuel. Manuel. Yeah. Right. Manuel Gonzalez. I, I can last name. I'll pull it up here. Or you're getting it. Anyway. I'm pulling it up. I got it. <laughs> I, I, was, I was talking to Manuel about, about this uh, Damascus gun barrels because he was interested. And he asked me if mm -hmm. I had used Thor for sorting some of this out. And I was like, Thor, what's that? What's that mean? <laughs> oh, and, man, that's amazing. That's and, and he starts telling me about it. And I go, I've never heard of it. And he goes, oh, well, all us guys down here in Argentina have it. I was like, how do you have it in Argentina and nobody up here in America knows about it? Right. So he sent me a copy or a link to it to download. Yeah. And in it was an about screen. And it was made by a fellow by the name of Christian Schnurra. Christian okay. lives in Germany. He's a blacksmith. And the original version of Thor would only work like on Windows 95. Right. It was a PC version. Yeah. So I sent an email to Christian and it, he doesn't speak English. He only sure. speaks German. So we use Google Translate. And right. I go, you know, told Thank him goodness who I was. For Google Translate. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I told him who I was. And I said, have you, have you thought about updating it? And he goes, actually, I've been thinking about it. Let me work on it. And so like in a couple of months, he popped this one up that works on Windows 10 and he okay. added a whole bunch of cool features of multiple languages and you can four way your billets and, uh, you know, it's really cool. Yeah. But anyway, in that Christian had a picture of the chain pattern billet. Okay. And I said, where did you get that? And he goes, oh, it's in a book that Manfred Zoxy wrote. And he goes, I don't think you've seen it. And Manfred, had, well, there's a, uh, uh, what book is it? Manfred wrote big book. That, uh, yeah, actually, I just got that book. It's been translated uh, to English. I have, I have it on, in my, on my bedstand. You keep talking and I'll go grab it. Yeah. So anyway, he goes, well, Manfred wrote, had wrote before that wrote a small book. It's called all's Uber Demostil, Dem whatever. But it's, the title in English is All About Damascus Steel. And it's a little paperback book. It's not very large, not a lot of pages. But in that book is a photograph that Manfred took at some museum of the cutoff ends of a bunch of gun barrel Damascus. And one of, the, one of those cutoff ends is chain pattern. So I, I bought the book and, and got it and... and uh, Anyway, yeah. But this is that's, the English version. That's it's the Damascus English Steel, version. Myth, history, technology, and applications. Yeah, it looks like mirror image of you when you're holding it up. Oh, yeah. I got uh, to so, do the whole camera thing. Oh, whoops. <laughs> anyway, at, some, at one point, I, I uh, asked Christian, I said, gosh, I wonder where Manfred found that. And he goes, oh, let me go ask him. I was like, Manfred is his neighbor or something, you know. And Right. Any Manfred, Manfred couldn't remember. He goes, oh, some museum in Belgium. I don't know where it was. So. Right. Oh, but, look but at this anyway. page I just opened up to. Ah, yeah. <laughs> that was literally the first page I opened up to. Yeah, some of the Damascus barrel guns. Yeah. So anyway, um, that gave me some better dimensions on what was wrong with my billet 
And so the sketch that Mareko just put up there was my sketch that I made in right. Corel Draw, where I can oh, actually put a Corel. photograph up and draw and physically measure it on the screen to come up with oh, measurements. Wow. If right. I know if I know the width on something or like on that, I blew the photo that Manfred took up to like a three inch square. Yeah. And then went in and physically measured all the pieces to find out that, you know, dimensions on these center stack pieces. And, and this is the original so, down in the bottom yeah. right quadrant. Yeah, that's the original photo, but you can see the height and width of the center stack and how thick. Yeah. I, I determined that from that photo, the chain link part should have been at the billet dimensions I use. I should have made them three eighths of an inch thick. Mine were only a quarter inch thick. I so, see. And my center stack was wider. It was all out of eighth inch thick material, which didn't didn't work out. So, well, that, and that one, amplifies perfectly how how the original stack really informs what the pattern ends up looking like, and how very even small dimensional changes from. Like you were saying, what was it? Three eighths, or was it? Yeah, yeah, to a quarter, a thirty percent difference in dimension. Yeah, uh, or thirty-three percent change in dimension changes everything of how it, overall presentation, especially in the finished piece. Yes. Yeah. Um, one thing I'd like to mention. Oh, um, I think I mentioned to you earlier while we was talking. Yeah. The Damascus gun barrel patterns. They had dozens of patterns yeah well a lot of them were combinations of the same original stacking arrangement i was intending to put together i i went in a reverse drew house sent me photos of hundreds of photos of damascus gun barrels mm -hmm. i went in reverse engineered all the patterns wow and come up with the stacking arrangements and got them laid out like that chain pattern yeah in sketches yeah and i was going to do uh like a coffee table book of Damascus gun barrel patterns and I doubt that's ever going to happen but yeah there's some of the photos yeah anyway yeah I have all those patterns those Damascus gun barrel things and I want to put them up at some point but I think that would be great I have a PDF document on my website I think on the tutorials page okay here let's on, I'll do a there, screen share there were old Damascus gun barrels that had words in it, people's names in the patterns. Right. And the guys on um, the double gun shop forums asked me, so how do they make all these patterns? Uh, oh, hey, is that the, the Thor 2 download? That's the correct one down there. Oh, okay. There's the correct one. So that one do, is it's right. On the tutorials page. Yeah. Perfect. Where's mine that I put up? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I don't have it on there. Anyway, I have okay. a document. It's on my Facebook page. I know that. Okay. I put together a document about how they put words in Damascus patterns. And yeah. I used all the old Damascus shotgun tube pictures that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, well, it was the guys on the double gun shop forums, they, all these collectors, they owned these guns with words in the patterns, but they had no concept about how they got there, but they really didn't have any concept about how Damascus was made anyway, right. anything. Sure. 
So the document starts out being extremely elementary because it was written for these gun collectors. I see. But it goes in how Damascus made, what happens when you twist a pattern. Oh, but it wow. goes into to how all these Damascus, how words are put into a pattern. And it's really pretty fascinating, I think, because um, I'm trying to figure, my brain's going here. What did I do with that document? I, th I thought it was on there. Uh, you anyway. should put it on your books tab. Yeah, I need to or something. Uh, on your website. You have a yeah. tab called books, and it's got your slip joint, which we haven't gotten to yet. But uh, that would I be probably was, a good spot for that. I thought it was on the website, but yeah, I need to get it up there somewhere. I thought it was on there. But anyway, it goes through how those words were put in. There is one shotgun that was quite a bit different in how it was put together okay. than, than all the others, and I lay it out completely. It was a shotgun that was made for President Chester Arthur. And oh, interesting. It actually, it says A. Arthur President in the pattern. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my they laid up the words in the pattern different, but I described right. how all that's done. But I think it'd be pretty fascinating to anybody that wants to, to work at doing that and really gain a good understanding of how wrapped patterns wind up with, with the, the pattern being displayed. Yeah. Well, and it's honestly, for me, twist patterns, like I have, I had, I think part of the reason I understood mosaics and deconstructing them so well is because I that's where I had the most experience and I basically have done no pattern welding with twists and yeah. um and so for me twists were always just like this enigma trying to figure it out and um I, I finally it was actually thanks to the Thor program as well as several illustrations uh, that or even just like bars that are ground down to cer certain percentage to reveal yeah. various depths through a bar that helped me to kind of wrap my head around what was going on. But you know, you see like the Turkish ribbon, and you see all the kind of like yeah. some of that's ladder, some of that's twist stuff, Turkish twist. You know, like how those patterns play together have always been tricky because what looks like just a standard grid on the end, like we're showing uh, with this like what it looks like at the end of the billet looks nothing yeah like what it represents in the, after it's been twisted yeah and, and then like obviously the density of the twist plays a role um and it's it's pretty interesting but yeah it's very cool to hear you talk about reverse engineering the twist patterns um because that it twists are probably to me are some of the most challenging um, because there is so much distortion from the twisting, yeah, it, it becomes very tricky to follow where things are at and trying to lay out a grid or kind of an organization of what that original billet might have looked like. Yeah, that's a reverse engineer and all them gun barrel patterns. Is I was lucky enough to get some good photos, but you're literally looking at every single piece of Damascus. And yeah, there, there were a few, and it helped me confirm it. You know, in the video where they was doing the scarf weld, the two pieces. Sure. They would try to hide that scarf weld underneath the forearm because you right. could see it. Yeah. But it was since they scarfed it out, it was like literally laying the billet out on on end. Yeah. So sometimes you could you could see it, and it was like the the end cut off a billet I laid see. out flat. And right. So it could help help me confirm that I had it right. I'm actually going to do another screen share. Uh, this is over on Damascus Knowledge, and. 
this page has a it doesn't show really the end pieces but it does show the many examples of different um gun barrel patterns let's see let's try to zoom in here a little bit closer to yeah, get those are piece. those are bernard that's the that's mm -hmm. the stack stuff that's what my pistol barrel is made of yeah and then this next one that's bernard, another, yeah. yeah yeah i'm going to step away for just a second yeah so i'm going to zoom out back out of this again let's see this is the bernard same pattern um, different material, obviously different maker. Um, and this is a Moshe, Moshe. Um, another, again, you can, and you can kind of see, oops, um, especially with that, the, the I guess, the, I don't know, I'll have to ask Steve what that part is, but this, the center part, um, how that pattern is laid up with basically bold material through the middle and then fine material at the edges, um, finer squares, basically. And you can see that. And what's always so interesting is it looks like uh, if you're looking at the actual barrels, the finer squares comprise the main pattern uh, through the middle and the bold stuff, at least this is the way my brain always works. The bold stuff always looks like it's on the outside, but it's actually vice versa. The bold stuff is almost always in the middle and the fine pattern material is always on the outer edge. Um, and so let's see this next one. Um, Wellington, I believe. No, it, 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 uh, I'm sorry. I wanted to go get something. I thought I could find it. Oh, you're good. I, I have a, you were talking about how if you grind down through the billet, how the pattern's different. Right. I have a demonstration piece that made by Jerry Rados. Okay. Where he did that with the Turkish Damascus, and I thought I knew where I had it, and I thought it was nearby, but I couldn't find it. Right. Apparently, it's not where I, I thought it was, but it's in that PDF that I put together. Yeah, I'll have to. That would be, and so that is that a personal page, or is that a... Uh, like a business page over on um, Facebook. I think I've shared it on both, but I do have a business page on Facebook that mm -hmm. it's it's Steve Culver and I's okay. Facebook page. You can get through it through my personal page. I might uh I might go fetch that and put it up on my personal Facebook page and then it'll be easy access. It's easy okay. for me to share it over on my personal page for anybody who wants to see it. Yeah. So this is some of that chain pattern damascus yes how it's kind of the more traditional and kind of i don't know if a proper presentation is the right word or whatever but that's you can see why it's called the chain because of how it literally looks like links of chains flowing around the barrel of the pattern or of the of the shotgun barrel the first time i saw that pattern was in Washington, Arkansas. Okay. At the school down there, a couple blocks away, there's a gun museum, or there was. Okay. And so, I don't know, it had to have been 89 or 90. I was down there yeah. for a class or hammer in. And I went to that gun museum, and they had a double barrel Ithaca shotgun sitting in there with chain pattern on it. And it just blew me away. And I was like, I want to make that pattern someday. Yeah. <laughs> 
Like, well, and it's interesting is out of all the different patterns, this is the one that I think has eluded people the most. It has, yeah. Can, well, so can you dive into some of your uh, your I don't know what to call it, but your explorations and trying to recover. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit already, mm -hmm. but kind of how long you've been working on it. It's it sounds like you you just shared like when you first saw it, and. I mean, has this been kind of the goal, this pattern, uh, the whole time you've been trying to figure out these gun barrels and everything? Or you well, know, how has that kind of evolved for you? This pattern here was one that really piqued my interest in Damascus barrels. Now, being a gunsmith, I was familiar with Damascus barrels. used to own a Damascus barrel shotgun. So okay. certainly knew about them for years. But this particular pattern just fascinated me, well, for the longest time. Yeah. I mean, there are some other patterns now that I'm pretty amazed at that you scrolled through that I'm like, wow, that's really cool too. Yeah. But I, I, I think the chain pattern has stumped a lot of people for a long time. It's when you get into it, look closely at it and discern where the weld lines are between sure. the individual rods. Right. That you discover the chain links are not the center of the billet. They're out on the edge of the billet. Right. And so you're welding two rods together. You're welding half a chain on each side. They come together in the middle where you do the scarf or where you will do the center weld between them to create a what appears to the eye to be a full chain. Right. And, and it itself, if you look close at it, it's it's nothing like a chain. It's an optical illusion. It's really a sloppy right. mess, but <laughs> <laughs> but at a distance and a quick glance, it does look very much like chain. Yeah, it is it is a very good effect for sure. But and this is still one you're working on developing, right? And, and working to replicate properly. Yeah, um, I have a project. Of, like I say, one. Didn't really want customers, but I was offered a project that I'm fascinated with. And okay. I won't throw any names out there, but I'm sure. asked to make basically a Damascus barrel sleeve to go on a single action army revolver that's going to be custom built. Oh, wow. And I would really like to do it in chain pattern. Yeah. <laughs> but then I've also got a customer who is a good friend who has asked me to make him a chain pattern hunting knife to go with his chain pattern shotgun that he hunts with so oh wow so he has a chain pattern yes wow. he, wants, he wants a hunting knife to go with it you know him i I'm do throw any names out here but you know him yes i do <laughs> i didn't realize that he had a chain pattern yeah shotgun though yes he does well that and makes sense uses... why he wants the matching knife <laughs> uh -huh. now i get it one thing that has concerned me, and uh -huh. I, don't, I don't know how it can, has crossed my mind. Concern might be a strong word. Okay. But, you know, the original stuff was made out of wrought iron and very low, low alloy steel. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really soft. Sure. And if you try to make this out of, and you've made the attempt now and did pretty yeah. good, you, you give me some confidence making it out of, to like 1084 and 15 and 20 yeah. 15 and 20 is a lot tougher than 1084 even at heat right will they distort properly during mm. the twisting process 
sure because of the difference in toughness right kind of the uh the the rate at which they deform yeah right that was one of the questions on my that knife blade that i made was part of the problem the 15 and 20 was so tough yeah yeah i realized i did have a dimensional problem too but that's been a concern but the the one you attempted i think it come out pretty good that that gave me some confidence that that could work <laughs> yeah and so you're referring so i did that with steve um when i was down there working with steve because he definitely has the setup for doing it and i don't know if my attempt is on this diagram here uh let's see i'm gonna stop that one mine is not so what we're seeing is salem straw in the top left quadrant is salem straws uh top right quadrant is an original chain bottom right quadrant is um is the original cross section of an original billet and then the bottom left is steve's work um i'd have to email or I, I have it right here. I'll just work on texting it. But yeah, I've it, you actually turned me on to trying to kind of figure this out. And I've seen your 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 attempts and Salem's attempts. Uh, like if I pull this back up, I think um, yours and Salem kind of have a similar distortion issue. Yeah. Um, where it kind of curls back up in a way that isn't desirable um it, it, where the where the chains kind of meet um and then i think salem's is actually a little bit too tight it, it could use a little elongation to kind of create more of that elongated chain effect because if you see in the top right quadrant the original they they are kind of almost kind of a lazy twist in a way <laughs> if you think about it and in in regards to the actual dimension of these yes. the originals it was basically one full rotation for about an inch to an inch and a quarter. Yeah, if you look at that, every star, the center stack stuff, as yeah. it is with, with um, Turkish Damascus and stuff like that, every year of the, one of the little stars, mm -hmm. that's a half a twist. You create that at every half twist. Yeah. So you see that is a, a really a slow rotation and it is a slow rotation for even Damascus gun barrel material. Yeah. Other patterns I've seen were twisted a lot tighter than that. Way tighter. Yeah. And that was one of the things that actually is kind of confusing about it is because it kind of is counterintuitive in that way. That yes, it, it is. That it's a lazier uh, twist rather than a very a super tight twist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's something that... Of the few documents we got, I, I mentioned we there were some folks that wrote about how Damascus gun barrels were made. Right. And, and they're all messed up. And <laughs> some of them was, was stating uh, twist rates and just okay. insane twist rate. Well, they twisted the Damascus at this many, this many twists per inch and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't understand what they were looking at. They were looking at the twisted rods. And there, there are Damascus demonstration rods that you can find them on the Damascus knowledge. They were like salesman's demonstration rods, the twisted rods for the gun barrels. Sure. Twisted rods, welded into a ribbon, twisted, welded and made into a gun barrel. And they looked at them and they go, oh, the twist rates are like, you know, 300 per inch or some 
some crazy thing. Oh my God. <laughs> we didn't know what they was looking at. You know, a square right. rod, when you twist it, error rotation, yeah. the four squares create four ridges. So they were counting ridges, counting them as a full rotation, and they didn't understand what they were looking at. No. So they stated insane twist rates. But again, people who are not blacksmiths trying to speak on something they know nothing about. So. Yeah. I think I think this is one of the uh, examples you're referring to. Let me just jump in here and share the page again. Yeah. Yeah. That's an illustration, but there are, and there are samples, actual samples yeah. left over. Yep. Um, and it shows the chemise, the tube looking thing in the center. One thing I wanted to go back, uh, when Pete had the video, he put all the captions in and he right. used the word tin. Or, right. And I said, why did you say that? And he goes, oh, I don't know. He goes, just kind of reminded me of a tin can. It was thin and oh. very thick material. <laughs> I go, well, it's not tin. Yeah. But I, I have, and I have had messed with pieces that, of old barrel tubes that I got from Dyson that had the chemise in them. Okay. It doesn't really, I, my first thought was that ought to be wrought iron, but I don't see the silica strands in it. Right. And I've cut pieces of it off. It is magnetic. So it is ferrous, but I'm saying this stuff is about as close as you could get to pure iron as possible. It's like, right. I see no alloys in it. I'd like to have somebody do some, I need, I'd like to see Kevin Cash and do a uh, test on some of that. Um, Dr. Drew did send, well, it was a blown up Damascus barrel. Okay. That like he's actually had, destroyed blown up. Yeah. Okay. Some, somebody had fired it. It was, it blew up at a shotgun competition and the, the barrel tube was plugged. Something happened. The barrel tube was plugged. It blew up because of, obstruction and the bore so but he had he sent it he spent thousands of dollars to have it tested yeah but professionally under the microscopes you know the whatever oh, the like the electron microscope yeah yeah even they couldn't discern very much because it's welded up in a damascus and it's so congealed together that they couldn't really come up with any solid definition of what is this but sure. They did analyze it, and overall, they said the overall Damascus material came out as something like 1005 steel, just very, very low, almost no carbon, almost no alloys in it. They could see the silica in it, but yeah, virtually nothing. Yeah. I'm just scrolling through. Oh, you can see the scarf weld right there, like you were yes. talking about. Yes. Where you can, because uh, usually the way scarf weld works is you forge a taper at the end of the bar. And if it's a mosaic Damascus, basically a cross section bar, you're laying that open, you're laying that out. Um, yes. And you can see what that end cross section looks like right there. That pattern, that's all these patterns had a whole bunch of different names. Sure. Uh, well, like best Lund Damascus twist. Okay. That is actually the Bernard pattern. If you scroll okay. up a little bit. Yep. Okay. I that's Bernard. Yep. Both of those billet arrangements are exactly the same. Bernard pattern is where you twist the rod 
And the one that you looked at down below that is what you get if you do not twist that rod. I see. It's interesting. You can actually see that scarf weld on this Bernard pattern example. Yeah. Too. Yeah. All you can see, it says it right there, ribbon end on. Yeah. Yeah. And that, for some reason, that's a mistake. That's the center rib, the siding rib down the center between them barrel tubes. And it's like the know, worst place to have that. <laughs> yeah. It's like they never did that. It was like, I, I, I'm going to guess when they forge, and there, there's the, if you scroll down a little bit again, yep. there's, there's the billet arrangement that's the stacked together square rods. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> My guess is when, when they weld those barrels up in the blacksmith shop, they weld the lumps, the part that goes down in the bottom of the, the gun barrel action. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm going to guess they had the tube oriented rod, <clears throat> excuse me. You're good. They had the tube oriented rod incorrectly when they welded the when they forged the lumps on the bottom of that tube. I see. And so it had to be put together that way. But to the untrained eye, who's going to see that? You know? Yeah, you're not going to know what's going on. Yeah, we see but, it because we make Damascus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's more more than anything like you're kind of saying right now is it's more aesthetics yeah. uh, structurally. I mean, this, this is a very clean, solid piece of material. Very. That's, that's really hard to bulk against. I like there's actually, I don't, I wouldn't say that at least in this section of the barrel, it looks pretty flawless. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. Well, um, and it, interestingly, when Drew had that blown up gun barrel tested, uh-huh. The the idea between behind the testing, there was a lot of people that say Damascus would rip apart at the welds and okay, you know, was part of the 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 trashing Damascus gun barrel, like, oh them welds get rust between them and they'll they'll blow apart at the welds and all that, you know. And yeah. they were doing this super testing on this thing, and there was like no part of the destruction in this ripped apart at the welds. It was across the welds. I you know, see. No welds come apart in this gun being blown apart. So right. That for the Damascus community, the the gun collector community was huge information for them. Yeah. So. So I did find um, a comparison. So we have Manuel's material in the top left quadrant. Okay. Then Salem's in the top right, and then we have yours in the bottom left, and then mine in the bottom right. Yeah. And and it's you, you can you can see it in yeah, just the 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 same kind of distortion effect that you experienced in your material. Looks like Salem and Manuel did it or experienced that as well in theirs. Um I think on mine I, the, part of the some some of the material near the outer edge and you can actually it's very well illustrated, like you were saying before. The chains are actually on the outside of the bar. Yeah, it, it's it it's illustrates it quite well right there. That that is the outside of the bar, not and not the core of the bar. Um, but I think in the future, I think the next time around, the the core material needs to be a little bit finer. Uh, actually, kind of like Manuel's is. I really like the density of his. Yeah, his it really helped there. isolate the chain really nicely. It just didn't have quite the effect. I'm sure. I know he was trying to go for um but it really helps to isolate and kind of have those final uh, the contrast i guess or juxtaposition you, i guess you can call it 
between the the bolder chain elements and the finer uh, kind of intermediate intermediary kind of patterns through the middle of that bar. Yeah. So, but yeah, I still have to get that material welded together and do something interesting. I do have a new uh, uh, Damascus welding process that I'm using that I think will will be a fun approach for this. And I think the the, the reason is is for my concept is to create a similar effect and aesthetic that the double barrel shotguns with the rib down the sight rib down the middle to create that all of that same aesthetic in what would be a dagger blade oh yeah but it'll be kind of tricky to get all that material welded in those different orientations because that is not typically how <laughs> um twisted material is welded but i think it i think i'll get it to come together nicely but i have yet to do it we'll see I did a dagger blade like that oh, years nice. ago. It was down at the school in Washington. They used to have a class called bladesmithing lab. Okay. And Jerry Fisk and Harvey Dean taught it. And you could bring whatever project you wanted to make. And it was a week long class and they would sit there and help you with your project. And Oh, wow. I, I used to go every year would go down there and take that class, but. But I did one that had a ladder pattern bar down the middle and then four twisted bars on each side. Yeah. And four welded together to, at the tip and everything. And yeah, uh, I don't even know what I did with that. I never did make oh, it. No. Anything. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably uh, in my shop somewhere out there. I never did make anything out of it. Oh, uh, that's that's a cool concept, though. Uh, like to, to, to create kind of a lab situation where you you bring your project, you're working on it. Um, and, and the makers, those talented makers are there to kind of help you troubleshoot as you work through your process. Yeah. And then you, you go home and, uh, huh. Oh, it was great fun. I, I loved it. Of course, I like that hanging around with Jerry and Harvey all day long. If all of us would go home or go back to the motel room every night and our faces hurt from laughing so much. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys were fun. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I had, um, I can't remember. I, I feel like I had something else. I was kind of. I was about to bring up. Um, so you do on your website. You have a very good, um, and really in depth, honestly, um, book about slip joints. And oh. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing and talking about that a little bit. Um, because I feel like you have some really great insights. And again, coming f- coming from your kind of mechanically minded background, you've done a really good job. And I remember you talking about this at the class I took from you at the New England School of Metalwork. Not, not really in depth, kind of touching on it, but just a few pointers that you brought up sure. um, were really great. And it looks like it's available on Jance Knife Supply. Yes, People yeah, are interested you can get it from Amazon, but Jance Supply sells it for me or they have it. Yeah, they're the only vendor that I've given permission to market my book. So, right. Um, that came out of uh, Nick Rossi asked me to teach a class on okay. slip joint folders up in the New England school. Yeah. And he sent me an email and said, can you teach a class? But we only have a junkie bandsaw and a old drill press, no other tools. <laughs> I was like, sure. <laughs> sounds like fun. 
Yeah. So I, I figured out how to do it, even how to cut nail nicks with a Dremel tool. And oh, wow. I, I put all the, the stuff together and it took it up there and taught the class. And uh, well, I put it all on a, on a flash drive and I give it to Nick and I had him print copies of it was basic my class lessons. Yeah. Well, then some folks heard that I had the lesson stuff and they're like, hey, can I have a copy too? And well, I didn't really want to be printing a whole lot of copies, you know. I mean, sure. it's tone ring. And I was like, well, I seen more guys as doing self-publishing. I thought, well, if I self-publish this, then I can order copies to for people. And so that's how it kind of came about. That that was literally my my class lessons from that one class. And then yeah. I went in and added some to it. But one of the things that I bring out in that is like, if, if you're teaching and then explaining something, you need to make it logical. It needs okay. to make sense. Right. And I'd had some guys when I was trying to learn how to make pocket knives, was trying to explain to me how to design a pocket knife. And it, it wasn't logical. It, okay. was like, it didn't make sense to me. And I was like, I should be able to explain this and make it make sense. Mm-hmm. And so a part of uh, so this this describes how to make it make sense and then a build process to how to build a pocket knife without a whole lot of expensive tooling and stuff. Right. No surface grinder and all that. So in, in a way, I'm almost embarrassed that I had this book out there. Oh, really? Well, I don't consider myself to be like a master pocket knife maker. I mean, my goodness, there's Ah, I mean, your work, you're full. I mean, those slip joints well, are really nice. I, I make some decent pocket knives. And stuff. He makes some darn nice ones. But, you say. know, my goodness, there's guys out there and there's guys that I've taught that I feel like they make better, better pocket knives than I do. But what I would say about my book is read my book as, uh, you know, a, a machinist instructor teaching you how to design mm. it. That was okay. my whole purpose. And the purpose was, once you understand the geometry of the, the slip joint lock, you can design any pocket knife after that, any slip joint pocket knife. Right. Okay. It, nothing changes. The yep. joint never changes. It's that solid science. Nothing changes. The geometry is all the same. What goes ahead of it, what goes behind that joint can be con- entirely different, but the yeah. joint never changes. Right. Mm. It's like on my computer, I have that joint changed or yeah. designed. It's all laid out, and I, if I may want to make a different size pocket knife, I just grab the corners of the joint and pull it out bigger or smaller, and <laughs> put a blade on one end and a handle on the other, and I never redesign the joint. Well, I think I still feel like I mean people should get the book for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a good book. I mean, it's it's good basic understanding, and you will understand what it takes to design the knife. Yeah. And an easy way to build them. And this, I mean, this is probably one of the nicer, honestly, in general, uh, um, slip joints that I've seen. It's very clean, very, I don't know. I'm a big fan of very uh, kind of uh, simpler folders. Yeah. And, but I do love the engraving embellishment work that you did. And you do your own engraving. Yes, I do. Which is awesome i mean i'm looking at this and i'm like holy smokes there's still so much like one i don't even know how to make a slip joint folder but then the engraving on top of that and the whole construction assembly process like i don't know any of that and while i'm like 
oh my god i suck i'm at the same time i'm like there's still so what's cool about knife making is just just like there's constantly new stuff to learn all the time oh yeah so i see that and again i'm inspired by your work to continue to push myself and discover new things and processes and techniques yeah there's there's no end to what you can learn and what you can do there's a few things that I'm, I'm not convinced that I should have got into night or into engraving. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Here's the deal. Okay. I, I'm really good with a graver. I can sure. cut lines really nice. Okay. You got to have lines to cut first. <laughs> oh, do you struggle with the design? The design. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you can go take a class and learn how to cut it, but you know somebody needs to ask you well can you design the artwork because if the artwork sucks it don't matter how nicely you cut it it's gonna be ugly and gray. <laughs> yeah really that's fair. no yeah you know, that's fair so the artwork is the hardest thing for me and i use my corel draw for my engraving artwork i and I don't think as, there's anything wrong with that you're still the one that's designing and creating it right well, yes, and, and uh, that's that's very common. And uh, there's a bunch of guys that uh, very well known uh, engravers do this. They're doing it on iPads or something. I don't know how sure. they're doing all that. So yeah, doing that, doing your engraving artwork on a computer or something that's totally acceptable. Yeah. But I kind of like I build a library of scrolls and leaves and stuff. Okay. As I create a new one, is like I keep that leaf over here, so. Yeah. You know, I will take a, a knife and I'll like, I put it on my flatbed scanner and I mm -hmm. scan it and I take the picture of it and put it in my Corel draw and I can create, you know, make an outline around like a, a pocket knife bolster. Yeah. And so then I can go grab a scroll and drag it on the bolster and turn it and shape it and go get a leaf and put it inside the scroll. And so <laughs> that's great. You know, I, I don't see a problem with that. No, there's no problem with it at all. But even doing that, I don't feel I have all the proper knowledge of how to build, lay in the scrolls and lay in the leaves. And then when you do the shading, you can do all the main lines and cut them, but then you have to cut the shading lines and right. make it look like one thing on top of another. To give it depth. Yeah. If you cut yeah. the shading wrong, it doesn't make sense. So there's that. Let's see. Oh, there's no engraving on that one. Sorry. I'm going to jump back to that one. And I see what you're saying now. And it's life. I don't know. I like just still like you, even though you, you're laying things out, like you, you're still designing that layout. And then you still have to do all the work to cut it properly and get all those lines in the right place to create that sense of depth. Yep. And, and that, and that contrast from the background i yep. you know i don't know <laughs> i i think it's pretty awesome i'm a fan and going through a lot of the knives the the photo you have a great gallery on your website by the way anybody who's interested to see more of steve's stuff especially if you're listening to the audio version of this go to culver art c-o-l-v-e-r art.com and he has a gallery i think it's one of the first links at the top of his website and and he's got tons of information on there or, or tons of great photos of his work past work and i honestly so you mentioned tim hancock earlier yeah and um 
this Bowie reminding me of Tim, Han Tim Hancock style. Yeah. Um, but this is definitely different from how I feel like I've, or the pieces that I've seen of Tim Hancock's work. Um, and I think this is probably one of my favorite pieces I've ever seen um, <laughs> of yours. And I remember, I think, um, I can't remember if it was on somebody's website or on Blade Forums or on YouTube, but you doing kind of a, a demonstration on doing the frame handle, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That was filmed in my shop at a okay. 2010 ABS hammer in here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Can ABS website's got it, I think. Oh, you know what? That's probably actually where I did see it. But just these, and these are called uh, dog bone? Dog bone handle, yeah. Handles. And, yeah. and is this a historical style? Um, I, I know Tim Hancock was very well known for them. And Mike Quisenberry has definitely carved out a name for himself yeah. with these style knives. Um, but I don't know the background of these knives. And I was wondering if you could share that with us. A little bit. <laughs> yes, it is a historic pattern. I'm okay. completely drawing a blank on who built them. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> no, you're good. I've done pretty good for an old man so far today. <laughs> You're doing great. Not everything, but uh, I don't remember who who originally did them. Uh, but yeah, that is, that is a dog bone pattern. Um, that's that's close to the original. There were a couple of features in the original I did not include on this. Uh, it was it's some some small grooves towards the dog bone, the back end of it some small grooves that were in some of them okay but yeah there's been a lot of really nice ones made in oh last what 10 15 years sure. i made that one oh man yeah i was a master smith when i made that one that had to have been 2008 2009 something like okay. that Another fellow that, well, he's passed away now that made a number of really nice uh, dog bones was John White. Oh, right. Man, Gosh, I, knew, I feel I terrible. I, I forgot yeah. about John White, but I, he was another maker when I was first starting out on my own, whose work constantly kept coming up. Yeah. Um, that I, or at least that I kept seeing. And I was just like, that is awesome. Yeah. John was an incredible maker. And actually, after I made this one, John came to me and he goes, how do you do that? And so John and I spent some time together, me showing him what I did. And, and I actually, I made an attachment for my belt grinder that oh. I use for grinding clips on knives. Sure. But I use that grinder attachment for grinding the bevels on the dog bone handles. And John oh. bought my attachment and used it on all his dog bone handles to, to grind them. Right. And I, I made this knife. Well, I, was, I think I was still in the process of building it. Okay. I had already done the grinding on the handle. Yeah. But I was like, and I thought it all up myself. This is how, this is how I figured out to do it. Okay. I, uh, I wonder how Tim does that. So I called Tim up. I <laughs> okay. go, hey, Tim, how do you do that? <laughs> He'd build an attachment just like that. And that's what he used on his grinder. Oh, funny. His, his wasn't near as elaborate as mine was because he designed it just for <laughs> doing the the dog bone but i got you but i have on my jigs and fixtures page 
I was just going to pull that up. Yeah. So and on your jigs and fixtures page, I actually, I learned a lot from this jigs and fixtures page. And I was, when I first started doing integrals and I built my first grinder. Yeah, that's the clip grinding attachment. Your your integral grinding attachment was what inspired my integral grinding attachment. Yeah. Um, Because I had that same small wheel holder and everything. But the clip grinding attachment you were talking about right here. Yeah. God, there's so many great pictures. Let's see. We'll just start here. But it looks like it attaches and then it pivots. Yeah. And it, it works good. I mean, I've used it for a whole bunch of things. There's a... Who is it makes the, the DD tool rests? Oh, yeah. Buy yeah. one of those now. Don't build mine. Don't Buy build one of those. <laughs> Honestly, for the money that he's charging for it, his mm -hmm. will do everything mine does, and honestly, a little better. Mine is a little bit limited at range, how far you can tilt it because I see. of the joint mechanism. And, well, I could pedal around with changing it some, but I'm saying go buy his. It's pretty good. Yeah, but it, it works, and it if if you don't want to spend the money and you got scrap metal laying around, then build mine. But Sure. But, yeah, it works great. Well, and this is, I think, what you did that's very unique. Is this what you use for the dog bone handle, or is that for the clips? Uh, I actually very seldom use that particular little. <laughs> okay. That's a piece of micarta that I ground round edges on it. Yep. For grinding in a, a clip where you're kind of wanting to not kind of a swoop down into the clip off the spine, okay. you know? Yeah. Well, that works. Honestly, I should take that picture off of there. That okay. works, but <laughs> but it wears out the micarta pretty fast. And I found I that I could freehand that with just a square edge of the belt grinder. And I got gotcha. you. It wasn't that hard to do, but essentially. I'm holding the knife blade down by the Ricasso yep. and then just raising the blade up into the belt with my fingers and pulling it along the belt. Nice. Works slick. And then your angles matches on both <clears throat> sides. You Very do nice. have to have your bevels ground <laughs> pretty much the same. Your blade bevels ground in the same or I gotcha. It won't match. But oh, anyway. But that's one yeah. of my, none of my machinery in my shop has avoided being modified. <laughs> oh, no, I, I feel the same way. I do that all the time. In fact, when I go last year at Maker Camp, I did a demonstration of handle sculpting and, and blade grinding. The first thing I did was modify some of the platens. <laughs> yeah. Because the way I approach it, I it, for my approach, it, those modifi modifications have to be made. Yes. And yes. Fortunately, uh, the, the guys over at Broadback uh, were were like, uh, I asked Ryan Broadback, and he, I was like, "Hey, do you have a problem with me like <laughs> ch changing any of these platens?" He's like, "No, man, go ahead and do whatever you want." And I was like, "Great!" And I just started hogging material and doing cutback angles on the back of the platen and doing all this funky stuff. Yeah. And uh... when I <laughs> entered a bladesmithing class, sometimes it's difficult for me because. The machines ain't set up like mine and like, sure I'm not, I'm not sure i know how to do this you know yeah 
Yeah, you got a lot of great jigs and information. Honestly, your website is a great resource, especially for newer makers, but even established makers um, who are willing to take the time and make their own modifications. Ooh, um, nice. There's a lot of really great information. I I got I learned. I feel like I learned a lot from cruising through and and just feeling honestly, just feeling confident. Like because sometimes I feel too precious about stuff, and I'm like, I don't know, can I actually do that? And yeah. after seeing your website and seeing some of the modifications that you made to the tool arms and to the machine, I was like, yes, I can do whatever I want. Um, yeah. And if it screws it up, I can also fix it. And that's part of the process is like, sometimes you do mistakes and you got to fix some things, but there, there are benefits to that kind of unintended education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I figure anything that you have to do repeatedly or mm -hmm. anything that you find difficult to do, then you need a jig or a fixture yeah. to help you at that process. If you, repeatability on doing the same job over and over, you need something right. to help you do that. But anything that's difficult, figure out a way to, to make it easy and build something to, to help you with the work. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, let's see. I think... Oh, Mike, I was just, I saw Mike had left a message or a comment. He said, uh, the Bladesmith Lab sounds like an amazing opportunity. Yeah, I agree. I think that sounds super cool. And it was a really neat concept. And I'm actually surprised. I've One, I've never really heard of, of that before. But two, that that isn't a thing that makers who have the shop space to be able to do that. Yeah. Or if there is kind of like that was at the Texarkana School, right? Yeah. Um, that So facilities that have that kind of set up and availability to do that don't at least that i'm aware of don't really do that no i haven't, I haven't heard of it they yeah. haven't done it for years and I, I i would like to see one of the schools do that again it was yeah. awesome you got two master smiths standing there with all their experience to help you out and every year i go back i go come back with a different project and once in a while, Jerry and Harvey go, uh, <laughs> but they were there with their experience, you know? Yeah. Maybe they didn't do it before, but they're there with the, their years of experience to go, well, right. maybe you ought to try this, you know? And sure. So it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, that would be, that'd be something I'd like to teach. I mean, if I've had the opportunity, that, that'd be, that would be really fun. Just go sit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and, there's so many new facilities now. There's the the Moran School out in Maryland now. Yeah. I think there's an ABS school in Iowa. Is that right? Ohio. 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 Yeah. Which is where the hammer in was just. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. There's obviously the New England School of Metalwork. There's mm -hmm. um, is the Texarkana School still there doing the bladesmithing stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Um other facilities that are kind of more public facilities rather than a private shop. What's the, the college in Clyde, North Carolina? The, I don't know if they're still doing stuff there or not. Pe uh, not Penland, is it? No. Or Hay, Hay, Haywood. 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 Haywood Community College. Right. Yeah. I think uh, they're I still know. there. Yeah, I don't know if they're still doing stuff. And then Maybe I'll get thrown out of the ABS for mentioning it, but in Washington, Arkansas, the school that used to be the Moran School is now operated by uh, the University of Arkansas, I think it is. Okay. And they're teaching classes as well. Okay. So it's not the Moran School anymore? 
the Rand School's now at Texarkana College. Oh, okay. At the college itself, but there's this this the facility in the school just is still exists in Washington, Arkansas. I see. But it's run by the University of Arkansas. Okay. Is there bad blood there between the, the University of Arkansas and, and the ABS? <laughs> uh, in some places, I think yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I probably justifiably so in, in some ways, but I see. I'm not, I don't know the whole story. And so I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not taking sides or trying to elaborate too much on that. I That's don't know, fair. but yeah. Yeah. Mike is actually chiming in. He There's also the Center of Metal Arts in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is another forging facility that does not just knives, but they do blacksmithing and, and both for creative as well as, uh, or like a sculptural blacksmithing as well as traditional blacksmithing techniques and skills. Yeah, it's awesome. Very cool yeah. facility. I would love, yeah. I still haven't been there, but I would love to go either take a class there or, you know, teach a class there. It'd be super fun. There's um, a, there's a craft school in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Okay. That Alan Newberry has taught a bunch of classes at. Okay. And they are doing some knife related stuff, knife making and stuff. And Alan Newberry's been teaching there. Oh, nice. Alan's a good guy. Yeah. They they asked me about teaching there and then I decided to have some health issues and oh, haven't, haven't got back to them yet. But so selfish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just keep trying to die. <laughs> what, what are you doing? <laughs> but anyway, that uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas on can't remember the name go to alan newberry's facebook page he's definitely got stuff there on it yeah i'm sure he's got information either from upcoming for upcoming events or i guess past events um to know like what the actual facility is called yes yeah um i want to scroll through now oh wait what's this? i feel like i keep jumping all over the place um tell me your your people yeah i um yeah, I just, I, I can't remember, Hopefully, maybe this might jog my memory, but while I'm trying to think of what I was thinking of asking or saying, uh, I want to kind of go through some of your past work. And this, again, these are a lot of pieces that you can see uh, from Steve's website, uh, as well as on his Facebook page as well. Um, and uh, these are just some of the, the pieces I pulled up because I just thought they were really neat and cool. And I really, on this one especially, I like the carving work on the handle. I think it's really nice. And it's, there's some details, it looks like, on the belly side that you can't really see yeah. super well. But um, it's, it's a lot of fun this one kind do of material movement. <laughs> yeah. Well, and talk to me while I'm kind of cruising through these. and if um, Kind of just like what the evolution for you has been like from when you first started to where you are now and where you want to go, I guess, in the next, you know, uh, you know, with the rest of your career, the next decade, couple of decades of work that you have in front of you. Well, <laughs> I don't know that I really had a plan. <laughs> okay. You know, whatever caught my eye and, and I, what I felt like doing, uh, maybe I'm easily distracted. Maybe I got ADD or something. Cause I can't seem to focus. <laughs> I keep changing things up. Um, something that I did, an idea I had, and, and I think I'd have to say it's a business mistake. Okay. Um, I felt like it would be a good idea 
if I proved that I could do anything anybody else could do. Mm. Okay. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this now. Or it's like, uh, if Tim Hancock can make this knife, I can do it too, you know? And, right. and, uh, I would, I would try doing, doing pieces, uh, just to prove I could, I had a particular skill or I could do a certain thing. And, okay. and I would, I would have, uh, so, so I was doing a whole, a whole wide field of different things. Okay. Okay. And I would have collectors come to my table, like the blade show and they would, well, no collectors. And they come over. I had to come see what you had this year. You know, I wanted to see what you built this time. And Oh my goodness, look at this thing you built and all this. And then they go, well, it's great to see you again. This is some awesome work. I'm going to go buy a knife, uh, Bowie knife from Lynn Ray. Oh. <laughs> so, I say because he had like an established style. Bingo. Everybody knew I could build virtually anything, but I, right. would, I didn't make a name for myself with any one particular thing. I see. So a collector would find himself with $3,000 or $4,000 in his pocket and he'd go, I want a Bowie knife, and he'd run through his mind. The guys immediately come up as Bowie knife makers. Right. I wasn't in the list, you know, right. or dagger builders. I wasn't in that list. Mm-hmm. Sure, he knew I did it, but I wasn't at the forefront of his mind. Sure. So, I guess, my, so it's 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 more like distinguishing, not necessarily because you obviously have your own style, but kind of becoming more distinguished in a certain line or genre of not yeah. so Get that when somebody for... thought of a genre, you would be maybe a list, you know, a list of five or six names that might pop into somebody's head. Yeah. Get known for something. Uh-huh. Show you can build everything, but do something enough to get known for it. Right. You know, and I, I don't think I did that. I, I jumped around and well, part of it was, that's what entertained me. Right. But, sure. I jumped around do it, trying different things and and uh it was fun. I had a blast. Yeah. And it ain't like I couldn't sell any knives. Right. But it was something that I, I observed from the collectors is that, you know, they would come by. I thought they was gonna buy something I had because they were just awed by what I had laying on the table, but <laughs> they, they were like, Oh, great to see you and this is cool stuff, but I'm going down here now, you know. And I see walk away and I'd see him four tables down buying a knife from somebody else. And mm. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking for, looking for a buoy or a dagger or a particular hunter. And, you know, can't buy right. them. I mean, that's, that's business. And I sure. that for me, a business mistake. And so. Right. And I guess trying to think of it from the buyer psychology perspective, like you had built up and developed enough reputation that you had no problem. Like you said, selling your work. Um, but maybe you weren't necessarily known for a particular thing or I guess distinguished as a certain style of knife maker. And that does play into the buyer psychology of kind of, kind of like this social currency that comes along with owning a certain type of knife, like a, a Tim Hancock dog bone buoy or which he was really like that was like his thing at least yeah. that's what i know him for uh or lynn ray especially now it's uh lynn ray's bowies uh and his x-ray knives like yeah. that is his genre like and so when they're talking about it not only are they 
buying work from an established maker who's a safe and good investment, but also they can, when they say, I have this thing to another collector friend or somebody else or whatever, yeah. they're also kind of throwing that name out there in a way that has a sense of kind of social clout or social currency that goes along with it. Yeah, it's it's the names that pop in their head first. Yeah. You know, who is known for what particular thing? And right. I say, you know, he's got three thousand dollars in his pocket to buy a nice buoy. Who does he think of first? Right. Yeah, yeah. and being I mean, that is the hard part is being at the top of that list or being at being part of that list kind of in general. Yeah. You know if you're gonna do this as a business, you need to be thinking about it, and that's right. Uh, the fellows I mentor that I'm telling you, telling them like get known for something, right? Do something and get known for that. But, but I've had a blast. <laughs> no, I, and I, it's not I like you're, a, you're, I got into making the historic stuff and I really enjoyed that. The Michael Price and the Searles and Samuel Bell stuff. And yeah, those are something I've really enjoyed making those. Yeah. Is this the historical? Yeah. So tell me about this style of knife because I'm actually not very familiar with this style. It does look like it has a, an older kind of aesthetic or his, more historical aesthetic and style to it, but I yes. don't know anything about it. Okay. The original of this knife can be found in the Alamo Museum. Oh, okay. The original knife was ordered by Reason Bowie, who is Jim Bowie's brother, and was given to, I think it's Colonel a Colonel Fowler. Okay. But it was, it was a knife he gave to him, but it is a genuine Bowie knife. I, I think there's some people that speculate that it was not Jim Bowie who was a knife guy. It was his brother reason. Who was the maker, right? Well, no. Oh, reason just like high quality knives and bought, I and bought knives and gave them to friends and <laughs> I've heard see. some people speculate that Jim probably wouldn't have had a knife if his brother hadn't bought one and given it to him. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, this knife is in the Alamo Museum. Okay. It was made by Daniel Daniel Searles. That's so it's called Searles Bowie. Okay. Um and I decided to recreate, make a replica of it. I won a best historic knife at the Arkansas show with this one one year. Um, boy, that thing was a challenge. <laughs> I bet, I'm, I'm even just like looking at the sheath. I'm like, I, I don't even know where you start with that. Uh, you know, the sheath was interesting to build. Um, the original is missing what the two rings at the top first. Okay. Like, Tino, the original's missing one of the rings. Okay. I was trying to recreate it as much as I could to look like, you know, it was new. Right. The original sheath is fairly thin in, you know, thickness, which they were back then. They didn't worry a lot back then. It seemed uh, that you was going to scratch your blade. Sure. Then they figured you, you were going to go skin a beaver pretty soon and scar sure. it all up. So yeah, the sheath material was pretty crummy. But, you know, often we'll make them out of leather and stuff like that. And they wind up being bulkier than originals. Sure. And and it doesn't really look right. So this is when I made this one, I wanted to make it thin and then put a felt liner inside of it. And then, of course, the black part, that's leather. And I'm like, how am I going to do all this? So I actually created 
on the inside of that is a kydex sheath. Oh, wow. I took kydex and formed it around. Well, I made a mandrel. Yeah. That would accommodated the, the thickness I needed uh, for the felt liner. Made a wooden mandrel, made a kydex liner, and then actually oh, stitched wow. a leather welt into the kydex liner. Okay. And then I took four ounce leather and I sprayed the kydex and I wet the leather. It was sopping wet. I was like, I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> sopping wet leather. And yeah. I sprayed, I used 3M90 spray contact oh, adhesive. Yeah. I sprayed the kydex and sprayed the inside of the leather and formed the leather over it and let it dry. And there was some of the leather that I needed to peel back to put the shape part, the, the tip on the metal yeah. part on the sheath on there. Yeah. And I took an X-Acto knife and cut it back where I needed it to be and then tried peeling it off. And it, it was glued so good. I was ripping the leather in two trying to peel it off the oh, Kydex. Crap. So even wet leather. Yeah. Wow. 3M90. I've I've used that before on stuff and I actually regretted it. And I had to like I had to go down to I think they do like a fifty or fifty or thirty yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I built that core up and then put the the felt liner in it, all the metal work on it and wow. formed it up. And yeah. That's an awesome piece. And it kinda it reminds me of like gaucho style knives you see a lot from South Americans. Yes, uh, it does have like the South American, Mexican kind of Spanish influence because right. that was probably 1830s. Sure. Right in that time period. And that's what they had. Uh, when I forged that, the, the top of that blade has like a reverse bevel to it. I was going to say, it almost looks like it has a dagger grind. Yeah, it's got, got a bit of a reverse bevel to it. Oh, <laughs> and I, I, I would throw out there. Harvey Dean actually got the museum to let him handle the original knife okay. and take measurements off of it. So oh, wow. when I started to work on this, I called Harvey and Harvey is good enough to sit on the phone with me and just rattle off all the dimensions, oh, wow. length and thickness of the blade, dimensions off the handle. So, so a lot of that, what, I, how I was able to build this is because Harvey gave me all these measurements. So, yeah, we'll throw that out for Harvey. Thank uh, you, Harvey. <laughs> where, where was I going? Oh, the reverse bevel. Yeah. So I was like, that's kind of odd. I'm not sure why why Searles would have done that or whoever forged that blade. Sure. But I, I started forging it. It's, it's really a thick blade. I forged it out of three eighths thick, 1095. It's okay. really thick. Yeah. And so I'm forging the bevels and I'm thinking I'm not going to forge up there at the top of it like that. I'm going to leave that and grind that in reverse, you know? Yeah. So I got all the forging done and held the thing up and it's like the top side of it, one side, but it's, it's leaning off at an angle reverse of my, the bevel I forged in. I'm kind of like, well, that's about the angle that I'm going to need to do that reverse bevel. I'm like, so maybe that's how it wound up that way. Right. Or is it just like me? And, it didn't come out straight. That little half inch at the top was cockeyed. And yeah. So, so you just go ahead and make that a feature and grind it in on the other side. And you got that reverse bevel on the ridge down to the back of the blade. So I don't know. Anyway, that's how it worked out for me. Yeah. Well, and something else that's uh, it's a detail that's kind of difficult to see in this photograph because of the size. But 
Uh, I think if somebody's watching this on YouTube and they and they do the full screen, they'll be able to see better. But around the handle, um, you have these raised portions that I believe are uh, checker filed. Yeah. And then they have a a lot of accenting pins. Yeah. Uh, drilled and 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 set into the handle material. Yes. Um, <laughs> And, and I can't tell if it's a separate panel or if that was a relief to bring down that other material or if, yeah. It's, it's actually a relief panel. Yeah. I, oh, wow. I set up a, a jig. I made a little jig and used a Dremel with a burr in it to <sighs> cut down the handle and, and leave yeah. those raised panels. And the panels are checkered. Yeah. And then those are sterling silver pins, 20 thousandths diameter sterling silver pins. Yeah, and I I drilled each one of those. They're only about a sixteenth of an inch long. Okay. Uh, I uh, I've got a Samuel Bell knife okay. that has a similar feature. On this one, I did the checkering, cut the diamonds first, and set the pins in the center. Okay. On the Bell, I set the pins and then cut the diamonds around them later. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Both methods suck. <laughs> I was gonna say that second one sounds like a pain because then you got to cut through the the silver at the same time. Well, you have to, you know, you got to cut around the silver. You got to. Oh, these are get all, so the silvers at the peaks of all of the diamonds. Yeah, well, is that yeah would have been a peak. These diamonds were actually kind of flat top. They never really okay. cut them to a peak. Okay. So they they weren't cut that flat. It was kept with checkering tool, but. I had to center the pin in the center of the diamonds. And so I had an embroidery needle and a, and a uh, pin vise. Yeah. And I would do a little punch mark in the center with an embroidery needle. Yeah. And then I had to drill the holes small enough so the pin would drive in there. And I took a 16th inch drill bit and ground just about well, not even three thirty seconds of uh, uh, the tip of it down to where it was smaller than the pins. Okay, yeah. Was sitting there with optimizers and had it in my oh, drum, in my Fordham and handpiece and was <laughs> building little holes and. Oh my god! Uh, I I took I had a I linked a sterling silver wire, and I would file a little point on it and start it in there, and then take a pair of needle nose and jam it down in the hole far as I could. Yeah. Nip it off and then tap it down in solid with a with a hammer and wow. Once I got a whole bunch of them set, then come back and file them all down to the top of the diamonds. And when I was <laughs> oh my gosh. The customer asked me oh. to build this and, and I'm trying to figure out how long it's gonna take me to build it. Oh, like, this was a custom order too. Oh yeah, it was a custom order. Oh my gosh. And I uh, yeah, he got a bargain on this. Luckily he's a good friend of mine. Okay. okay. But I, I'm thinking about this and I'm like, man, there must be 150 pins in that thing. There's oh. 500. <laughs> yeah. The original oh. knife, I, I put pins in the bottom panel too. The okay. original knife does not have pins in the bottom panel. Okay. I put them in there. Oh, on the belly side of the handle. No, yeah. Right. Okay. If I'm right, I'd be, I'm not sure it has them on the top panel either. I have to go back and look again. But definitely does. So the original knife does not have as many pins. Okay. But I put 500 pins in that handle. 
Holy smokies. <laughs> and then of course the, the escutcheon plates are the escutcheon plate too. There's on the original knife, it's only on the right side of the handle. Mm. Not one on the left side on the original knife, but I put two in. Right. So those had to be inset, you know. And, and the escutcheon plate, that that's would somebody's name typically get engraved on there for a sense of ownership or yes. how that work out? Yeah. Um, I always wondered about those. And yes, it would have. I don't remember that there's anything on the, the escutcheon plates in the handle on okay. the original yeah. if you can you can't hardly see it on this the section the upper right picture of mainly the handle and a little bit of the blade yeah if you can see right or see up in there there's a gold inlay in the spine up there okay oh yeah just barely it's yeah. it's about two inches long it's written really you don't see it in here yeah on the original it has that gold inlay and it has Colonel Fowler's name up there in that, oh, wow. that gold inlay. So but gotcha. that had you had to cut the cut the channel out and then cut the little little turn up little burrs in the bottom of the channel and right. the hammer a gold wire into it to to fill that fill that up. So that oh, is up gosh. there. Like yeah. the original. That's so, wild. Yeah. That's an intense piece. It is. <laughs> yeah. Well, and another one that's really great, kind of along this lines, I think, is an, another historical piece. Yep. That's a Samuel Bell. Yeah. Okay. Same thing. Now, yeah, that one I set the pins and then cut the... Those are actually little squares and not exactly diamonds, but... Okay. Again, same thing. The sheath on that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Samuel, Especially with the swage on it. Yes, because the swedge on a bell knife is only from one side. It's a chisel grind. Oh, wow. Okay. But but his sheaths are shaped the same taper, the same, like, to match the grind, bevel grinds on the blade. Okay. So it's not it's not rectangular like a Michael Price or something like that. It's oh, got wow. to match, match the bevel. And so making a sheath like that, wow. That was a job. I I made a comment. Harvey Dean has made a couple of those, and I made a comment on my Facebook page about what a challenge it was. And Harvey said, "Yeah, they're hard on a man." <laughs> <laughs> and it it is. That yeah. was um kind of a compendium of artistic things that Bell okay. did on a variety of his knives. That that's like a knife that Samuel Bell could have made might have made you know and, oh, i see okay <laughs> i like those that's yeah. cool it's 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 all represent even the engraving is bits and pieces of engraving and he did that himself you can look at bell's knives and you can see he used the same artwork here and there on a number of his knives so okay taking the liberty of using his artwork off a variety of his knives and sheaths and putting it on a single item was plenty logical in my mind. Yeah. He did it. I did it. So, but that's, that's what that one was about. Well, and also the, what is really, I mean, all of it's very interesting, but the transition from the blade to the handle. Yes. Is geometric, which I feel like I don't 
feel like I've actually really seen that before. Yes, they're little octagons. Yeah. Or, and and that was, but that's all part of it's. Is that integral? Yeah. Or yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm not sure any of us really know how Bell did that. Okay. How I did that. I had measurements off of Bell knives and, and uh, Mark Zaleski helped me out with a lot with photos mm. and, and dimensions that he took. Yeah. Those little octagon pieces, I think there, there are six of them. Um, okay. Those were actually cut from flat stock. Okay. Uh, the round part that they're, they're on, that is a piece of, I turned it out. It's actually a tube. The, there's a round tang from the blade that goes down that tube. It's very thin stock. Mm -hmm. And then each of those octagon pieces were drilled in a diameter that would fit on that. And then basically I had the little octagon patterns of different dimensions that I ground them to an octagon around the circles that I had drilled in the, in the stock. Sure. And then all of that silver soldered together into stacks and soldered onto that tube. So oh, wow. it's different, different thicknesses of stock and different outer dimensions, as you can see in these octagons. So wow. that's how I went about it. And and Mark Zaleski, he owns Knife World. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. He's a owner, editor, and he has a really nice, amazing collection of, of antique knives of all varieties. And she sure. was at the Ohio super hammer in here. What was it, a month ago, whatever. Yeah. And he did a, he joined me on doing my demo, but he brought a lot of his knives and we examined those. And so that was really cool. Mark's a cool dude. Yeah. He's interesting. Yeah. The first time I met him was at uh, Eugene, Oregon, the, yeah. the Oregon Knife Collectors Association show uh, several years back, I think in 2014 or 2015. And um, yeah, it, he was just constantly, I, I just saw him constantly, like every once in a while he was talk, stopping talking to somebody. But usually when I would see him, he was like walking across the show, like very determined, <laughs> like he's got it. Um, he always yeah. looks like he's on a mission, don't he? Always looks like he's on the mission for sure. <laughs> I think he is. Yeah, but, but he's a he's a cool guy. But he helped me out a lot, and and uh, I've got a there's a Michael Price style knife on there. I think it's yeah, it's in the Bowie Gallery. Okay, but the sterling silver wrap frame handle, and and that's uh, what I was doing the demos on at the Ohio show. See. It's in the Bowie Gallery at the, the very top one, I think. Yeah, I think I have that pulled in here. It's not this one. Oh, here we go. Yeah, that one there. Yeah. And so when I when I had that Samuel Bell blade, I was contemplating about what I was going to do. And I had some of those handle pieces to make a My Michael Price wrap frame handle like that. Yeah. And I was contemplating putting that handle on the Samuel Bell blade. I thought, oh. why wouldn't have Bell considered that? They're kind of same time period. Why, why wouldn't have Bell considered that? But so I took the parts and I knew I was going to see Mark at one, one some knife show. Yeah. 
Yeah. I took the two pieces down there and I, I took, I got Mark over my table and I slid the two pieces together and I go, what do you think? I said, you're the only guy that could convince me not to do that. And Mark looked at it and kind of screwed his face up and he goes, don't, <laughs> he goes, don't do that. No, take them apart. Yeah. yeah take them apart. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, no, we'll funny. do that. <laughs> Is this also another price style? Well, that's actually the handle piece that I I put on the Samuel belt and showed Mark and okay. Mark was like, don't do that. And I was like, well, I've been wanting to do this on a buoy too. So yes, that is a, the wrap frame handle style. And that is so cool. That knife wound up in China, but I thought to me, I thought that came out pretty cool. I think it looks pretty damn cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. What's wrong with putting a 150-year-old handle pattern on a modern buoy blade? Nothing. I think I come out slick. I like I that. Think, I, I think it came I out like good. I need to do that again. Yeah. Well, and imagine, like, I could see it having kind of like the, 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 what is that, a Spanish notch? Yeah. So yeah. having that down at the, I mean, honestly, it kind of reminds me of, what's going on in the dog bone. Yeah. Having that Spanish notch, it, I feel like it couples very nicely with the Ricasso. And then that transitioning into the price handle with pretty, pretty dang slick. Yeah. 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 I think there's lots of opportunity there. You know, that, that I did that demo in Ohio on the wrap frame handle making mm -hmm. and the metal sheaves and stuff, which, yeah, that's not so complicated, but you don't see many people making the wrap frame handles. And I think they scare people out of trying it. And, and to me, they're not that hard to build. I'm like, so. Well, I, it, it, it involves silver soldering, right? Yeah. Well, the handle doesn't have to. Oh, okay. Interesting. You can, you can do the handle without silver soldering. Okay. I mean, uh, there's some fittings inside of it. Yeah. Um, one in the back that's probably would be better if you silver soldered it, but you don't have to. Okay. But yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember if I did enters any, I don't think I did any silver soldering at all on that handle. Oh, wow. I, I used a high, there's a fitting on the inside, the nut on the back holds yeah. the back end of the handle together. Okay. So there's, there's a metal fixture fitting that you got to solder into one side uh -huh. that overlaps at the back where the nut is. Yeah. Uh, you want a good high strength solder for that, but it doesn't have to be silver solder. Sure. But I I really feel like those, those handles are not that difficult to make. I and, see. Interesting. So the wood, when we're seeing the wood, it's kind of more of a, like an inlay or a, a panel. Yeah. It's just a panel. Um, oh, that is I'm, so interesting. Okay. I'm, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how Price put his together. I ain't seen one of his tore apart. Or Steve Rapp makes a lot. <laughs> you of didn't them. go to destroy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just destroy this and take it apart and see how he did this. <laughs> but I, I make a micarta core. So, okay. And I'll pull a, this back up here. A, a solid. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I got. I there's a video out there somewhere of me doing a demo on that making okay. those but i do a solid micarta core that's a half an inch thick the tang goes through it and yeah. then 
the two frame handle parts have to be made on a, on a mandrel. You got to hammer them over and make them all up, all up. Yeah. But that micarta core goes with that handle through the whole construction process. Even the engraving that I do on it, when I take it down and put it in my vise for engraving. Yeah. Once I get the whole handle framework all done, I take that micarta core and I mill like 90 or a hundred thousandths off of each side of it. Okay. And then glue my actual handle material on the two sides of the micarta core. So the handle material's not that thick. It's right. hundred thousandths or less. Oh, wow. Glued to the core and then all of it goes back together again. That's so interesting. And the pins don't go through the handle. They just, they just go through the, well, and most of my, the, the handle material I put on, like the wood there or the ivory on the Michael Price style yeah. that I had. Yep. The handle material is sitting on a piece of titanium, 20,000 titanium. Okay. So then I've got something on the backside of the handle material to peen the back ends of the pins. Those are dummy pins. Yep. Peened over on the back and only go through the titanium and the whatever's left of the handle material. Wow. And I got, actually, I'm going to do another screen share back to your website. Because you do, on your tutorial page, you have yeah. the jig. Yeah. That is for a single uh, one-piece wrap frame handle. Okay. And I've got a dagger that I've done on one. You got to be careful not to put too sharp a corners on them because you got to get the mandrel out and your handle material back in. <laughs> right. But but again, I do a micarta core in that. Yeah. And then apply the material later. There should be another picture there of, if I've yeah. got that one, of the... No, that's still the. Gosh, yeah, that's still the that's the, the single. Don't I have the? Uh, do I not have the Michael Price on there somewhere? Maybe I don't. Well, I need to go back and maintain my website, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got a lot on there. Uh, there's Forge Building. Yep, Forge Building. Yep, all your cool forges. Let's see. <laughs> well, anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's the only handle one that you got on there. That's weird. Okay, I should do better. <laughs> I think you're doing great, honestly. Any anything that you're willing to share, anything honestly that anybody's willing to share is great. Um, I think there are there are still people out there kind of gatekeeping in a way, and and the reality is like, we all only have so much time in this world, right? Yeah. And, something I think about, which is, I don't know, I don't think it's necessarily morbid, but I'm, I'm still young, but the reality is, and, and I've lost people that are my age, like, oh yeah, accidents happen, people get in car accidents, things happen, and people are lost, and it's, what good is anything that's up in here, if it's, if it goes with me, and so that's part of what, and honestly, like, your page has inspired me uh, to do more work to share, it was, it was your page, uh, it was definitely Nick Wheeler and what he would share and talk about through his videos. And, and those things inspired me to do more to share my, some of my process. Um, because again, you niche, you just never know when your time's up and what good is it if it's, if it goes with you, 
it's not benefiting anybody and and we all have so little time in this world anyways you know why not work together to try to help each other out to 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 get more out of this life um you know why not that's yeah you know it's like the damascus gun barrels i have so much time invested in that right and i've gained so much knowledge that wasn't easy to learn i'm like I don't want to see it lost again. Sure. Because I took so put so much effort into into coming up with the knowledge, you know. But yeah, really, there's limited places for me to share it, and and so I, I'm trying to dump a lot of stuff uh, over to Doc Drew so he can put it up on his. Mm, sure. But, you know, even him. What happens to Doc Drew's website? You know, I mean, right. We all got limited lives here, and you know, yeah. And, and he's the one that's got the, the Damascus knowledge website. Damascus right? knowledge. Yeah. 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 The, I mean, that, that is a, cause it's like, I, I wonder if there's somewhere and Mike actually might be a good resource, Mike poor, um, but somewhere. <laughs> he, yeah. He, he had to take off, but he yeah. said, thanks, but he, you know, there's gotta be somewhere where some of these things can be archived kind of in a way, conti- kind of to continue to be kind of a living document in a way that keeps track of these these different knowledge and techniques or even like even links to like the thor program or like the that damascus barrel making video like stuff like that as the you know every day honestly every hour so much more information is coming out those things get buried and lost yeah they do and so it's 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 trying to figure out how to archive that in a meaningful way somewhere where it can continue to be added to and not just be lost because somebody, you know, because somebody passes away and then no longer maintains a website. If it's part of an organization, honestly, like the ABS, um, where it can continuously as, you know, the ABS doesn't end when somebody passes away, it gets passed on to the next hands. And I think that's one of the great things about it. And so if, work was being done either through their website or through their organization to help with preserving some of that those documents and that information i think that would be really pretty dang handy for people to have as a resource to come back to really i know dr drew's putting his stuff uh damascus knowledge he's got it on google docs and Mm -hmm. maybe there's a way that stays there yeah I I, I I don't really know. I don't know enough about all that. I don't know enough about <laughs> his social media computer stuff. Yeah. So there's that, but I, I don't know if our knowledge could be loaded to something not yeah. permanent. That... <laughs> I don't know. Where does it go? Yeah. I like, even know. for me, if I were to, God forbid, get in a car accident today as I drive to the shop, what happens to any of my pages and any of my stuff? Yeah. Well, any, any of that it's you know we are but a mist <laughs> <laughs> we are but a mist for sure well we've been on here for three and a half hours yeah man i, I think we did a great job sharing and talking a lot and uh, and and sharing a lot of great information honestly uh and i thank you for for all that you were you've very generously offered um and talked about um, and, and that you have in the past and you, again, people should go be going to your website, culverknives.com, uh, sorry, culverart.com. Yeah. 
Uh, you're also on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, is it? Well, <laughs> don't count on Instagram. <laughs> okay. Well, you're on Facebook at least. I'm on Facebook. Steve Culver. Um, and I, I'm not sure. Is is your Facebook oh, have... page? Is it also Culver Art or is it? Steve Culver? Uh, it's just Steve Culver. I I have okay. a business page, but honestly, I don't maintain okay. it very well. And all right. I mean, there's stuff on it, but you can see all all you'd want to see on the on my website right but i'm trying to i'm debating what i need to be doing here and move well, like we're talking about where where should i be moving my stuff and what should i do with it but yeah maybe i'll make a decision <laughs> yeah yeah huh. well and there are websites actually uh so don fogg's website is basically gone now he didn't keep that up yeah but somebody somewhere down the road um say what is it called the internet i think it's called internet archive or something like that but you can archive pages oh. and so you can still go visit his website as it looked at least in like the late 90s wow um, and so and it's just like i don't know who is paying for these this information to be stored but <laughs> yeah and maybe it's a nonprofit organization or something like that but it's basically the idea is that it helps to preserve information like that uh again I, I know mike had to leave but maybe he'll catch this last bit and he can help give some better ideas or maybe anybody else who's got some concepts and ideas for how to preserve some of this information because um it it, it, it would be unfortunate for especially since you've done so much work to rediscover kind of the process for making those, those, uh, gun barrel. Yeah. Um, Damascus. I mean, that's super great. I think it's super great and super cool. And it, it would be a bummer for it to get lost again. Um, somewhere down the road, you know? So yep. anyways, I just want to thank you. Thank you for ha coming in here, spending some time chatting with me. Um, I want to thank everybody over on the Patreon for their constant support that helps make these conversations a reality. Um, and I especially wanna thank our super sponsors. Again, this month, uh, we have Josh Smith, uh, at Josh A. Smith on Instagram. We have Gabe Fletcher. Uh, Gabe is at Anchorage Forge on Instagram. We have Lawrence Lake of Maritime Knife Supply at Mar MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. Russell Tinsley. Uh, is at Can't Make Knives, also at Oozel Finch Beers. Um, Michael Poor, who is joining us for this conversation throughout, uh, he is at Red Dragon Forge on Instagram. Tony Sazma is at TNT Forge on Instagram. Eric Kidwell is at District 202 LLC. And Dan Hubs is at 66 Mountain Knives on Instagram. Go give these guys all a follow. They're all great dudes. Uh, doing good work and and helping to really, um, you know, again, make this podcast a reality and the Patreon a reality. Um, and so that's it. I just want to say thank you to everybody. Thank you to Steve one last time. And we're going to call it a day and let everybody get back to their, get back to business as usual. Uh, I wish you all the best. Stay safe. Let the people know. Uh, who you love, know that you love them. And uh, well, I'll see you again another day. Bye-bye. 
Thank you all again for joining me for this conversation. If you'd like to be part of the discussion, come join me and other innovating makers on my Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Malmasi. That's spelled M-A-U-M-A-S-I. I look forward to chatting with you there. Cheers.